What was I going to say? I don't remember. Um, you're recording, right? How wonderful I am. Yes, I am. (laughs) How wonderful you are. All right. I'll introduce you that way. (laughs) Okay, here we go. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. I am Scott Gardner, and joining me is the ever-wonderful Michael Bailey. <laughs> oh, man. You see, that's something they're not going to get unless I play the clip at the very beginning. So, uh, <laughs> if, Help! If, I'm under duress. I'm being forced to say these things. If, if I play the clip at the beginning, you know what he's talking about. If not, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That was my evil laugh. You better play it, because otherwise, you know, our listeners are a bunch of freaks, man. They'll conjure up all sorts of, like, weird gay shit for us to be involved in, and I'm just not cool with that, so. But anyway, um, God, where the hell was I? What are we talking about? Oh, we'll be talking about funny books here in just a minute, but before we get into that, I've just got one little thing I would like to talk about real quick, just something I would like to clear up. I continue to be inundated with Facebook messages and PMs here, there, and everywhere, pieces of email, whatever, from our awesome listeners constantly asking me, are you going to cover this? Are you going to cover that? When will you guys be talking about this? You know, what about that series? You know, what about this character? And that's awesome. I love it. However, (laughs) I find myself constantly repeating myself about a lot of these questions. So, in an effort to just sort of put all your fears and all your questions to rest, basically, if it's got the JSA in it, if it's got a JSA or in it, if it's Earth 2 relevant in a big way, we're pretty much going to cover it. So that goes for uh, Infinity Inc., America versus the JSA. Definitely. Uh, I've never read it, and I'm so looking forward oh, to it. Oh, you're going to like it. 
you're going to like it. It's good. Um, what was the other one somebody asked me about today? Last Days of the JSA. Well, we have to talk about yeah. that, don't we? Yeah. I mean, but I, <laughs> I'm serious. I, you know, I'm not, I promise, I'm not making fun of anybody, but I'm just surprised by the requests that I keep getting and the questions I keep getting asked of, you know, will you guys be covering this? And I'm thinking, well, you know, this isn't some wacky weird thing off in left field somewhere that, that might be obscure or we might f- forget about. You know, this is like right in our wheelhouse. So, yeah, guys, don't don't fear. I mean, the, the show's not going to be over when we get to the last issue of All-Star Squadron. I mean, we're going to continue. We're doing everything JSA. I mean... Even if, even if it's just like a two-minute mention, like, you know, when we get to it, the Flash Annual number three from 1989 right. that Jade and Obsidian appear in. Mm-hmm. And it's like a big, like, he's trying to find the JSA. We're going to be covering that because it's on point. Well, isn't that also crisis relevant, if I remember right? Not I that I'm aware of. I know there was a Flash annual that somehow or other tied into the crisis, but now I'm, I'm but, at a loss to remember exactly how. But it also means that we'll be mentioning issues of The Flash circa 1992 when Jay Garrick's in it. Just to say, hey, he was in it this month. Right, and, right. And all that. Because, you know, a lot, you know, Johnny Quick gets in there, uh, Jesse Quick, uh, especially after that JSA series from 92, 93 is canceled. So there's a lot to cover. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean we're going to give it the full treatment, but something right. like The Last Days of the JSA, which is. Frankly, one of the most important JSA books of the 80s. Yes. Uh, And there's so much to say about it other than just, you know, how the story is. You know, there's a lot of ramifications of what they decided to do with the JSA. And it wouldn't be the first time that a crisis would F over the JSA in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Because Zero Hour, they tried to put them in mothballs again after that. Right. Absolutely. It didn't take. And you know why? Because it's the Justice Society of America. And they're awesome. Though that is, we are going to get to. (laughs) I don't know where that voice came from. (laughs) I was wondering too. But uh, we are going to get to Last Days of the JSA, assuming we survive the crisis coverage. (laughs) Because that might break us or kill us. I'm not quite sure. It's just going to be so freaking epic, it's not even funny. I'll be a broken man. But that's okay. That's okay, because I'm younger, and I'll probably live longer. (sighs) Not if I have anything to say about it. (laughs) Oh, man. So So anyway, I hope that didn't... I, I oh, hope it didn't come off as like rude or snarky or anything. I did, I promise I don't intend it that way. And and it's not like anybody was like bugging me by asking. It's just, you know, it, it was a, it was a taste of what it must be like to be one of these celebrities that constantly gets asked like the same exact question every day. So what would what like to be on Star Trek or you know something like that? It was like, wow, I've answered this same question about X series like 50 times today. So, yeah, I, so that's all. That's that's all I mean by that is that, you know, please be be assured that uh, we, you know, if it's got JSA on the cover, you're pretty much assured we're going to touch on it in some form or fashion down the road. So fear not, gentle listener. So what have you got before we uh, get into the first episode proper here? Uh not much. I mean, I'm just ready to dig into All-Star Squadron um, and the uh, the Brave and the Bold issue we're going to be covering, which was wonky as heck. Oh, but I like it, though. It's good. No, no, don't, don't. I, I, I'm hoping that, 
as much as we both like it, I kind of play fast and loose with trying to be a little humorous with nothing wrong with aspects that. of it. So um, I hope that people who really like that story and like want to take it seriously uh, don't get too upset with me. So oh, I, I mean, I like it, but I have absolutely no problem whatsoever highlighting the goofy about it either. So yeah, <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. But that book also forced me to take out my Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes Volume One, Batman by Michael L. Fleischer. So oh, we'll awesome. That. We'll get to that in, the, in that. Ow, in that uh, portion of the show. You know, on that subject, you, you just reminded me of one other thing I wanted to talk briefly about. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but sometimes you make me feel really bad about this show because you're like the super in-depth research every minute detail guy, and I'm like the fucking read it and show up guy. You know what I mean? I'm and sorry. and I, no, 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 no. I, I promise I don't mean that as a criticism. It's awesome. And I need to find a way to, like, step up my game because I think I'm very much bringing my back-to-the-bins approach to this show lately, and I don't want to do that. I really want to be, like, just as up on things as well. My problem is I don't have access to a lot of the same um, materials that you do, like the, uh, what is it, the All-Star Companions? I have the first one, and I don't think it touches anywhere near the, the material that we're it, into right now. I, it, it, like, mentions it in passing. It, it was it was the Volume 2 that had the issue-by-issue issue annotations, uh, uh, complete with pictures and, and, and reference sources and all that. Um, I mean, right now, I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of the research that I'm bringing to the show, I did three years ago. So. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> so I sorry. figure once we get past, um, the, let me see, according to the, the Parisphere blog, the last issue you covered was issue eight. So I figure once we get past that, I want to make it more of a 50-50 effort for us both to be bringing, you know, the historical and all that sort of okay. thing to the show. But I, I just wanted to mention that. It, it's not that I that I feel badly or anything. I just feel like I'm not, I'm not, uh, like, it's not fair. Like, you've done all the work for this, and then I'm just, like, the dude that shows up. So I wanted to mention I, I, that. that I, don't, I don't think of it like that at all, sir. I, I guess it's a half-assed, backhanded compliment, you know? But I just... You I made me feel like a dick. Thanks. I, I feel completely <laughs> useless on this show. I'm going home to mother. <laughs> anyway. It's really funny when you live with your in-laws that your wife looks at you and says, I'm going down the hall to mother. <laughs> Oh, anyway. Yeah, we better dig into this one. All right, we are covering, first of all, All-Star Squadron number 5, the January 1982 issue. Original cover price, a mere 60 cents. And, uh, yeah, I know. Awesome cover on this one by Rich Buckler and Romeo Tangal, and it shows... uh, some of the JSAers here, we got Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, Johnny Quick, uh, Robot Man, and a brand new hero that I'm not going to spoil right away, although it is kind of spoiled on the cover. But anyway, they are all fighting Nazis atop the Statue of Liberty, right on the head and shoulders of the Statue of Liberty. It's a very, very cool cover. I really there's like it. There's this only one. one other way this could be more awesome. How's that? Remo Williams was there. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) 
You know, something I meant to look up, and I just remembered, God, I'm such a lazy bastard sometimes, but I really meant to look this up, was exactly when did the uh, Statue of Liberty turn green? Because I'm wondering if it was green yet by this point. Probably was, because it had been around, what, about 60 years by that Somewhere point? Somewhere around there. I mean, that thing was exposed to the elements, so that copper yeah. sheen will uh, will have faded probably fairly quickly. I mean, because not only do you have the rain and the elements and the snow, you also have, uh, you know, coming off the water, it's salt water out there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's so. true. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, it's the Atlantic Ocean, so yeah. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. But I'd be curious to try to look that, you know, if, if there is any sort of, you know any sort of notation on so because it's probably i'm sure it was a gradual process but uh, you know so it's not like somebody woke up one day and said holy shit it turned green but you know there had to be a point where you know there was there's some sort of half-assed delineating line between whatever color it i mean what was it was it brown originally it was like a copper brown i was i yeah. was watching that um that history channel special uh, america the story of us and Is that a the, Ken Burns thing? N- no, it it, oh. would have, it would have been probably a lot better if it was a Ken Burns thing. Um, I was I was kind of disappointed when they got into the 20th century, the things they chose to and not to talk about. But uh, but they showed like the construction, you know, a computer generated image of the people working on the Statue of Liberty, and it was like a copper brown almost. So. If you ever get a chance to to read it, and I realize I'm, I apologize that we are already sort of half-assed off topic, but uh, just a quick note: um, anybody interested in the Statue of Liberty, there's an awesome, awesome, awesome book called uh, "Time and Time Again" by Jack Finney, and it's a time travel story. And this guy goes back to sometime in the uh, 1880s, I want to say. And one of the the cool moments of the book is he's walking down the street and he actually sees the it was the arm of the Statue of Liberty from I think about the like the elbow on up was actually displayed in New York City for a very long time before the statue was actually finished and put out into New York Harbor. And he sees this in the book and reading that uh you know, for the first time, I had no idea. I didn't know that. I thought it came over like in one piece and they just set the thing up. You know, I didn't realize that like pieces of it had been displayed around New York before its assemblage. I just thought that was really cool. But anyway, awesome book. If you get, ever get a chance to read it, actually tells you some interesting stuff about, uh, you know, that era of New York. But anyway, I apologize. Let me get back into the rest of this. Rest of the credits on this one, we've got a uh, writer and co-creator Roy Thomas. Penciler and co-creator uh, Rich Buckler, who sadly, this is Rich Buckler's last issue of uh, All-Star Squadron. Makes me very, very sad. Um, inker embellisher on this one is Jerry Ordway. Colorist Carl Gafford. Letterer Ben Oda. And editor Len Ween. And uh, I was discussing with Mike just before we started recording, you know, we kind of got away from doing the roll call. So, you know, as I think of it and as these things come up, I'll try to remember to do this from now on. So anyway, our roll call for this time around is The Atom, Dr. Fate, Dr. Midnight, a brand spanking new hero that's going to pop up in a little while. So that's still a mystery yet. We got uh, Shiera Sanders in this one, who is a secretly Hawk girl, although she's not Hawk girl in this issue. Uh, Hawk Man, Johnny Quick, Johnny Thunder, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, Sandman, The Shining Knight, The Spectre, and Star Man. That's a gaggle of superheroes for you right there. 
Okay, so uh, the the story is entitled "Never Step on a Feathered Serpent." And while I'm thinking about it, never step on a trousered serpent either, because that's just not cool. You don't like trouser snakes? Well, no, I I, I have one on my own, and I want to make sure it doesn't get stepped on. So, okay, just uh, that, that, just a that's bit quite of, an uh, ego you have there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> So, synopsis for this time around. <clears throat> At a meeting of the Justice Society, Hawkman announces his decision to enlist in the United States Army in his real identity as Carter Hall. He expects a negative response, but his comrades surprise him by giving him their best wish- wishes and act Hawkman misinterprets as them not caring all that much for him, which is very funny because until they actually explain themselves... That was kind of my reaction as well. As well. Wow, they think he's just as much of a dick as I do. <laughs> so the Adam sets him straight by admitting that they uh, had all decided that they were going to enlist, but believed that Hawkman would try to talk them out of it. They finally call the meeting to order and vote to inform the president of their intentions and to disband the Justice Society for the duration. After the meeting, Midnight asks Hawkman if there was any word on Hawkman's fiance. Hawkman replies that there hasn't been and that he is flying to the Yucatan in the morning to find her. Midnight and then the Atom decide to join him, but first the trio keeps Hawkman's promise to check in on Danette Riley. Meanwhile, in a stone temple located in the Yucatan Peninsula, Nazi General... How do you pronounce this dude's name? Is it Sarkel? Sarkel? Sockel? That's a weird one. S-A-U-K-E-L. Sockel? I'm going to say Sockel. Sockel to you. All right. So anyway, General Sockel pleads his case to the order. I'm in a weird mood tonight. I'm sorry. (laughs) He pleads his case that the order to strike must be given at once. Sitting on his throne... The fed, that always cracks me up. I'm sorry. <laughs> the fed serpent counters that the stars tell him the time is not yet right. Oh, I'm going to use that excuse the next time my wife wants me to do something. Sokka <laughs> believes that any further delay could end in disaster, especially since Great Britain has fulfilled its agreement with the United States and declared war on the Japanese and the fact that Green Lantern had prevented a Nazi invasion of the East Coast. Now, that was the East Coast of the United States, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the Feathered Serpent uh, refuses to listen, adding that their allegiance is not for the benefit of Nazi Germany, but for the glory of Mexico, and that he, as the living symbol of the old ways, will usher in a new age for his homeland with the sacrifice of the captured Shiera Saunders, or Sanders. I always want to say Saunders. Sanders. Well, you're kind of right. Right. Yeah, I know. There's, a, because, there's some weird thing with her name, right? Because No, because later on, and, and I don't know if I want to give this away or not, uh, Roy Thomas does one of his things where he puts two things together that yeah. previously didn't make. Like, she's related to somebody. Uh, Speedy, right? Speedy Saunders? Yeah, something like that. He was like yeah. a pilot character, which yeah. is probably why I don't know all, know all that much about him. Which I... And speed, I, no, I think it's Speed Saunders, not Speedy. I think and, it's Speed and, and I know this is another digression, but this is what, one of the things I love about this book is how he does crap like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think the only one that bugged me 
Um, I, at least the only one I can remember off the top of my head that ever bugged me a little bit, and I know you and I recently talked about this, was how he ends up tying together um, Dick Grayson, yeah. and whatever. What was that dude's name? Uh, Chuck Grayson. Chuck Grayson, yeah, the assistant to Robot Man, only because that one's a bit of a stretch. I, you know, I was like, okay, come on, you know, just because they have the same last name, do they have to be related? But you know, anyway. So uh, back in New York, Johnny Quick and Robot Man an- answer a request from the police to help them with a group of saboteurs on Liberty Island. The two heroes take down the Bundus and continue on to Danette Riley's apartment where they join Liberty Bell, the Shining Knight, Dr. Midnight, the Atom, and Hawkman. While the others discuss her condition, Danette wakes up and based on something she remembered in her dream, she investigates the key that Slugger Dunn had given uh, to her on behalf of her comatose brother. The key fits a bust that opens a hidden closet and reveals her brother's secret life. Outside, the heroes continue their discussion when Johnny Quick begins to smell smoke. They quickly realize that the smoke is coming from Danette's bedroom, and the group rushes in only to find Danette surrounded by flame and wearing a strange costume. Danette passes out, leaving Robot Man and Johnny Quick to rescue her and put out the flames. After coming around, Danette tells them about finding out her brother was the hero known as Firebrand and the sudden emergence of her powers. After that is settled, Hawkman says his goodbyes as he prepares to search for his fiancée, but the Atom quickly volunteers everyone to help in this quest. Danette also agrees uh, to go, much to the chagrin of the Shining Knight. The next day, the heroes and their civilian identities arrive in Mexico and quickly set about finding Shira Sanders. After spotting someone wearing his fiancé's scarf, Hawkman and the Shining Knight capture the man and coerce him into leading them to Shira. Uh, the rest of the group is led to a warehouse where they are attacked by Nazi soldiers. The battle is brief but fierce, and with the help of the new Firebrand, Danette as Firebrand, the heroes defeat the Nazis and interrogate General Sakul. Sakul? I'm going to get this. Yeah, it's just a weird ass name. Sounds like a Vulcan name or something. So, anyway, uh, miles away, Hawkman and the Shining Knight are led to an ancient pyramid only to be felled by a hidden electrical net. Soon afterward, the two heroes revive only to stare in horror as the feathered serpent prepares to sacrifice Shiera Sanders. And that's where this issue ends off. Okay, so uh, there was a bit of a snafu with this issue's cover. Um, All it has on it is it has a picture of Danette Riley as Firebrand. Um, She's very much doing like the Human Torch kind of thing. She's blasting down at one of the Nazis with a bolt of fire. And there's this black box over her that simply points to her and says, Firebrand! But it was supposed to say, Introducing Firebrand, the hottest new heroine of all. But for some reason, everything but Firebrand got blacked out. Do you know what the story is on that? Apparently, uh, there was a flub somewhere between Chemical Colors, who did the color separations of the issue, uh-huh. and the public with the words introducing and the hottest new heroine of all getting left off. So it was simply just a coloring issue. Uh, when I finally get the blog up and running for this, mm-hmm. I'll actually have a scan of the arrow that I took from a future issue uh, that, that that corrects that. So. Well, I know back at this time that the color separation technology still wasn't very good. It was because... basically a bunch of women, like, 
cutting up crap at the printing press, from <laughs> what I understand. Well, do you remember when they got into this stage in the 80s? I know that there's an issue of Swamp Thing that we either just covered or that we're going to cover over on Two True Freaks, that there's black word balloons with white lettering inside, and some of it is literally impossible to make out what yeah, the hell it says. This was, you know, this was the... They were still doing basically the same color separations as they'd been doing for decades. And it's only when we get into like 84 and 85 when they, uh, when, when for whatever reason, and I'm sorry, DC, I love you during this era, but here's a tip for the future. Do not experiment with your color separations on two of your biggest freaking books that you're going to put out. <laughs> Good because advice. The, the first issue, the first two issues. Now, who's who didn't look as bad? But right. The, like the first and second issue of Crisis, especially that second yeah. issue, looks really damn wonky, which is why I'm glad they recolored it in the various trade paperbacks and hardcovers that they've released. Right. So, yeah, but you know, it it does look. It's like Firebrand here, and it's like there should be like a ding, <laughs> like right above her. You know what I just noticed too is that she's not flying; she's yeah. like swinging. And does she? She does later fly though, doesn't she? I forget. I'm gonna. Be I can't remember either. Yeah, I can't recall either. Well, we'll find out. Um, continuing notes on this one. Sadly, no hostess ad this month. That that's ah, oh, that sucks. Um, the first scene that we open up to in this issue, uh, actually retold events from All Star Comics number eleven back in nineteen forty two, where the members of the Justice Society did resign and joined the uh, armed forces. And there's parallels to uh, Roy Thomas's run on Marvel Comics uh, Invader series uh, continued in this issue. In Giant Size Invaders number one, Roy put in President Roosevelt's uh, date, date, which will live in infamy speech. Though in the Giant Size Invaders uh, version, Roy accidentally wrote day instead of date, a mistake he uh, fixed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Sockle. <laughs> talks of a Nazi attack on America's East Coast with the aid of an experimental aircraft carrier that was thwarted by Green Lantern. This actually took place in Green Lantern number four from the summer of 1942 and uh, had a really cool cover on it of, uh, is this Green Lantern and Doiby Dickles in I'm the army? so. Yeah, that's a really cool cover. I like that one. The Feathered Serpent... Uh, tells Sokol that uh, he and his followers are not merely Quisling-like puppets. The uh, term Quisling comes from the Norwegian leader, is it Vidkun Quisling, who helped deliver his country uh, to the invading Germans in 1940. Soon after, the word Quisling entered the lexicon in reference to someone who betrays his own people to an enemy. And in the uh, Changed for Decency department, the original art for page 16 of this issue had a tastefully shadowed but completely nude Danette Riley. Uh, well, not exactly nude, but the original art did make it pretty clear that Danette uh, slept sky-clad. Colorist Carl Gafford was instructed to add underwear uh, lines on this and another page before it was sent to the Comics Code Authority. This would not be the last... 
nude JSA or that uh, Jerry Ordway would be responsible for. Though in that, though in in the future in that Infinity Incorporated issue, Wonder Woman's naked. <gasps> yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, I can't wait. Let's read that right now. I'll be right back. That's like really. Okay, Scott's off to the bathroom. I'll take over the show here. I Go guess. ahead without me. <laughs> I'll just be a minute. That's I'll need what about she five said. minutes. I'll be all right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> um, let's see. My notes are, are, are pretty simple for this one. Uh, I really like this opening scene. I love that first page. That splash page with all the JSAers standing around. It's just yeah. this this is why I fell in love with this book, is because they made these characters look cool and dynamic. Which unfortunately, with all due respect to the artists of the Golden Age, when I look at that art, because I was not I didn't grow up in that era, I don't get that oh man, that's awesome feeling. Very seldom. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, nothing against them, it's just this is artwork from my sensibilities and my tastes. So, uh, I, I do think it's funny. It does look like on page two that Hawkman's about to cry. And, uh, that makes me laugh because he probably is. He's probably got a tender heart and he just doesn't want anybody to know it. He likes to show off his manly chest though. Um, were you surprised that Johnny Thunder joined the Navy? No, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my thoughts okay. on that. Actually, nothing against people who served in the Navy. I watch a lot of NCIS, so I got a lot of respect for that. But damn, uh, <laughs> I really—it's awesome, and it's it's a good story to get the JSA involved in. I just don't like the feathered serpent. I don't like this villain, <laughs> and. I can't really put my finger on it, but I just don't. I mean, I appreciate what Roy Thomas was uh, doing because he did kind of zig when I thought he was going to zag. It's just like, okay, I thought I thought the main villain in this was going to be the ones that everyone's fighting on the cover. But turns out, no. Um, I'm going to take a couple minutes now. We're going to get out of the show because we actually have uh, – it, it's reprinted in part on page five. Uh, thanks to Scott, I have a – uh, the speech that President Roosevelt gave to Congress on December 8th, was it? Yes. On December 8th. So we're going to play that right now, and then we're going to come back into it. Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation 
and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attacks. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us, 
to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. You know, on that subject, if you don't mind my plugging something real quick. Sure. Um... I swear to God, I don't intentionally shill for the other shows on this show. I really don't. But it just occurred to me, um, listening there to the president, that um, I have a a 4th of July Independence uh, Independence Day show up on Two True Freaks. And if you care, I mean, if if you have a patriotic mindset, you know, you like that sort of thing for Independence Day, um, toward the end of that episode... I actually play in full something called the American uh, American Adventure, um, which is from Epcot Center at Walt Disney World. And in there, it's basically in about 30 minutes or so, it's basically a, a real fast recap of the first 200 years of America. And there's actually a portion toward the very end of the show all about this era of American history that, you know, when we got into World War II, a small portion of that speech is actually played. And during the show, um, one of the audio animatronic figures is the president delivering the speech. It's really, really cool. But, I mean, if you just if you care to hear the entire show, it's actually part of that episode. So yeah. uh, check it out. I'd recommend it. I listened to it yesterday. And... Uh... I was very 
you're going to take this the wrong way. I hope I hope you don't. I was amused because <laughs> I heard I heard Frank Welker's voice in that, who's the voice of uh, Fred on Scooby Doo. He was the voice of Megatron and. Uh, oh really? What what voices was he doing? I I could not tell you offhand what he was what he was. If I listen to it again, I'll, I'll point it out to you. But Rosie the Riveter. Uh-huh. Scarlet from G.I. Joe. Oh, no way, really? Yes. Oh, that's I know cool. That, I think her name's B.J. Ward. So I know can... somewhere that I've seen a, a voice list, you know, a voice cast list for that, and I'll try to look that up, and uh, and maybe we can put it in the show notes or something, but that's very... I, I, I had never thought of that before. Yeah, if you listen to it again, you're going to hear, like, Fred every once in a while. I mean, uh, <laughs> from, uh, from Scooby-Doo. So, yeah. <laughs> that's cool though it all comes back to gi joe for you doesn't it well i, I grew up watching the show it's like no, you would no, probably I'm... recognize voices from the filmation yeah various animated things since they had like a cast of six people i hear the guy that played lex luther on the uh, 1988 superman show a lot in all kinds of different stuff yeah, he was he was cyclops in that pride of the x-men animated special he was bruce banner on the incredible hulk animated series from 82 he was duke and a bunch of the joes he was a couple transformers his name is michael bell he was uh That's zan right. on the That's super right. friends um he was Groppler Zorn in yeah. live action in the yeah, it's, it's Star like Trek the, only, the Next Generation episode. It's like the only time I've ever seen him physically. Yeah. You know, and, but once he opens his mouth, you know exactly who it well, is. No, I, that's the thing is that for years that bugged me. Every time I would watch uh, Encounter at Farpoint and I would see that guy and hear his voice, it would drive me. And it's like, I know that guy from some. But I kept trying to think of like, what movie did I know him from? And it wasn't until like years and years and years later that that I finally realized that holy shit, that's Zan from <laughs> the Super Friends. And he was also Plastic Man. <laughs> oh no way, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's uh, awesome. To end this tangent, though, uh, his Lex Luthor not my favorite. I Aww. really don't like his Lex Luthor, uh, and that just comes from I I think his the timber of his voice was wrong for the character. Okay, I see what you're getting. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that, yeah. Okay. I, I liked the characterization. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right. the characterization was fine. It's just, you know, l- let's face it, who is who is sandwiched? He is sandwiched between the dude from the Super Friends that had a very deep voice like this. Right. And Clancy Brown. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. <laughs> you're right, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so, um... This was a very exciting issue, though, and I like the fact that the action really never let up. I mean, you'd have like a page or two, like when they're going when they're at Danette Riley's apartment, and uh, no one's trying to sneak a look. Uh, shockingly, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you've got those interludes, and I love the elevator operator going. You know, you, there are a lot of superheroes coming here to her mount. It's well, it's for the war effort, so keep your mouth shut. Oh, mum's the word, like. Yeah, I love that. That was a great... No, I love that moment. I really do. I seem to be making fun of it, but that's how some people felt back then. Mm-hmm. That it was their duty to... If someone said, you need to keep your mouth shut, they wouldn't... You know, you'd probably have to torture them before they said anything. Right. Um, and speaking of that scene with Danette 
I'm sorry. I'm looking at this outfit, and I'm like, wow, she found it in a closet. <sighs> she found her brother's pink shirt and his secret life in a closet. <laughs> oh, God. And he hangs out with a guy named Slugger. There's a lot about her brother that is never talked about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> though I do like how they try to cover for her wearing underwear. It's like, good thing I had this bathing suit here. <laughs> that is a good thing, isn't it? Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> though, th- this is a this is another example, is that if you put a male hero's costume on a woman, always looks sexier. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> But seriously, I mean, we've we've got the thing at the beginning, you know, the meeting at the beginning, and then that moves right into the whole thing with the Nazis, which is cool. Like I said, I don't like the Feathered Serpent, but, you know, it's Nazis. You know, these guys are, are supposed to be fighting, you know, the bad guys. And the Nazis, I'm sorry, are the last legitimate bad guy you can have in a movie. You can't make anybody else a bad guy. I mean, I was watching Pearl Harbor yesterday while I was making dinner. The only reason I was watching is because we were doing these particular issues. Because I've seen the movie once, and I I really don't like it, but I'll sit down and watch it. And in that movie, though, you know, the Japanese are definitely the enemy, you know, they went out of their way to show a nobility in some of the Japanese uh, hierarchy. So, but you don't have to do that with Nazis. Everybody can be a scumbag if you're a Nazi. Seriously, Nazis and aliens. That's it. (laughs) You can't have, like in the 80s, where the bad guys might be from the Middle East. You can't do that anymore. Because people will complain, (laughs) because we're in a highly politically correct um, situation. But man, you know, (laughs) Nazis are everybody's favorite villain, (laughs) except if you're a freaking white supremacist. And no, I don't feel bad if I have offended any of our white supremacist listeners because, yeah, (laughs) we're going to get letters. But then we go right into the fight on the Statue of Liberty, which we kind of glossed over in the the synopsis, but it's a really exciting scene. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's well choreographed. It looks fantastic. You get to see Johnny Quick and Robot Man um, really strut their stuff and and, and and just hats off to the artists. I love the fact that Robot Man keeps telling Johnny Quick to stop calling him Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes me laugh. But then right there at the end, not only do you have, you know, Hawkman and, and, and uh, Shining Knight getting into shenanigans, but they go into a warehouse, it's full of freaking Nazis, and they kick everybody's ass. It's like the opening move. It's not that somebody punched somebody. Liberty Bell kicks somebody in the face. And I'm just like, yes! <laughs> and then Johnny Quick steps in, and the dude with the flame... I mean, it just builds and builds and builds, and it's just so awesome. Which is why I say this issue is awesome, but I have problems with the Feathered Serpent. <laughs> what do you got for this one? Oh, my goodness. Where to start? I actually have a lot more notes than I thought I did on this one. I want to start with the cover. I love the cover, but once again, we are treated to a cover of events that never happen in the issue. That bugs the crap out of me, too, don't worry. It it does, only because 
you know, part of the plot, again, like you say, we kind of glossed over it in the synopsis, but part of the uh, story here when they were fighting at the Statue of Liberty is that the um, torch-holding arm starts to break off, and Robot Man has to actually literally hold it together. And based uh, solely on the cover image, I kind of expected Danette to show up and weld it back on, you know, like yeah. fix fix the broken part, you know, and of course except for Robot Man and Johnny Quick, none of these other heroes ever make it to the Statue of Liberty. Only the two of them are involved with that part of the story. So I was a little bit disappointed in that. But, okay, um, getting back to the Johnny uh, Thunder thing that we were talking about before. All right. I can be a little bit slow on the uptake with these sorts of things sometimes, but is he seriously insinuating that he might be gay in this part? I wasn't going to say anything. Okay, well, I'm just I'm just asking. All right, moving right along, though, he does say something. Where is it here? He says, oh, come on. Can't you take a joke? My adopted kid loved it. And I'm thinking, who in their right mind would let this dumbass adopt somebody? It's a Bandesian girl. Oh. She comes back in the uh, the 92-93 JSA series. Why? Why do I not remember that? Because huh, it's okay. really easy to forget. I'm okay. surprised I remember <laughs> All right. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> Look, you know me. If I remember something, I remember it vividly, and I can tell yeah. you what I was eating that day. If I don't remember it, it's never coming back. <laughs> Page four. I love this little scene. It's only just a couple of panels, but this little scene, this little exchange between uh, Dr. Fate and the Spectre. Love it. It was a really nice scene because, you know, it's not very often that you really see the specter humanized, but he was in this one moment. And I really liked that. I thought it was a very uh, kind of a touching scene between the two of them. Well, the other cool thing is you got the two magic users talking about how they can't join the military. Right. And it's like Roy Thomas thought, you know, these two are really different from the other heroes and they would probably have... Not like a friendship, not like a Superman-Batman friendship, but there would be, and this isn't to sound like I'm trying to do slash fic with them, but they would have a connection. Right, yeah, that, they, that they would have a closer camaraderie than, than yeah. the other heroes, I yeah, would think. Because yeah. they're the only ones that can really understand what the other is going through. Because let's face it, you know, Paul Levitz hinted at this, and, and, and writers, you know, after Roy Thomas would hint at this, but the Spectre made everybody nervous just with all how all powerful he is but uh it does occur to me on that on that third panel does that not look like a jim apero specter shot very much so very much so and i I almost wonder if it was purposely done that way i hope so i really need to find that wrath of specter four issue thing that reprints the adventure comic stuff i'm uh i'm watching an auction for it right now that is actually very very cheap and as i am very very broke i'll be happy to pass that link on to you my friend Okay, I may have um, to keep up on that. On page five, bottom of the page. Now, I was aware of Lex Luthor's fairly recent stint as president <laughs> of the United States, but I was not aware of his stint as Speaker of the House in 1941. That's actually really interesting. I never thought about that, but that's great. <laughs> 
my my I, I I'm just I, you know I'm ready to just close out the show when I crack you up like that because my I feel like my job is done for the episode. It's like <laughs> thank you, good night. <laughs> what were you just make me like uncontrollably laugh? Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's great. Right, so page six. I really like this part where. Uh, at the conclusion of where the general, whatever the hell his name, I can't ever remember, Sokol is, Sokol is talking about um, how Green Lantern defeated the uh, the, the German invasion of uh, America's East Coast. The very last note here, or the very last part of his speech is he said, uh, uh, not a single one so much as violated American airspace. I think that's an important detail because that's Thomas's gentle way of explaining away why we wouldn't have then prematurely gone to war with Germany, you know, before we actually did in reality. So I, I thought that was a, a very nice touch that, that he was able to kind of explain that away. Um, page seven. Um, there was a nice reference here. And uh, you had it in, in your historical notes that this was actually a nod to uh, – Raiders of the Lost Ark, but there's actually a mention of the Ark of the Covenant. It says the still lost Ark of the Covenant. I thought that was pretty cool. And you're probably right. It probably was an intentional nod to uh, Raiders, which was had just been out at the movies not long before this issue came out. And, you know, it's it just, you want to live in a world where Indiana Jones exists in the same world yeah. as JSA, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. we talked about that before, I think, when we were doing the All-Star comics. Uh, review yeah. way back in the early part of this show where we thought about how awesome it would be for Hawkman and Indiana Jones to team up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man, that's just, that's like freaking perfect, you know? There, there, there's no way unless, like, they changed it from being aliens to beings from another dimension that that could just get screwed up. <laughs> Wait, did I say that again? Damn. Now on page also page seven here, this is where we we really get the first really good look at the feathered serpent, and I have a new wish list for comics, and uh, this is at the top of it. I think is that the very next massive uh, Marvel DC crossover that we ever get, I simply must see the feathered serpent and Orca from Marvel discussing and comparing headwear. <laughs> I really want to see that. Because both of these dudes, they have a serious uh, problem with fashion sense. Mm-hmm. Second panel of page nine. Tell me that dude in the hat is not Robert Mitchum. That is Robert Mitchum. Yeah, He's absolutely. probably drunk. <laughs> now, the other guy there, the one that's pointing, he's probably supposed to be somebody famous, too, but I can't quite place him. He looks like a Gil Kane drawing. You're right. He does. He very much does. And he looks a little bit to me like, uh, oh, what was the dude that played uh, the Riddler? Um, Frank Gorshin? Frank Gorshin. Yeah, he looks a little bit like Frank Gorshin to me. Just a little bit, though. Like a young Frank Gorshin. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Page 12. And I'm trying to remember which character actually says it here. Okay, right here. Johnny... Uh, Johnny Quick says something, blah, 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 knowing hair, shickle gruber. And then he goes on. To, he, he makes a, just this reference. So I looked it up. And according to some information on the Internet, it's uh, some people say that this was actually Hitler's father's real last name was shickle gruber. So evidently this was something of a. Yeah, I was just trying to catch whatever the reference was actually supposed to be, too. 
Um, this one here is kind of, for me personally, kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room for this issue is on page 14, and actually throughout a lot of this issue, but it kind of comes to a head on page 14, Johnny Quick is uh, is really lamenting the fact that he can't go into the service. And, you know, kind of looking at the at the JSAers with a bit of an, of an envious eye, but I got to thinking... Aren't the JSAers defying the president's wishes by enlisting? I mean, didn't he specifically call on them to come together as a special battalion to stay yeah. stateside and, and protect the United States? So maybe, maybe it's because they're friends they could get out of it. Though I am curious as to why in the hell Johnny Quick is so surprised. In, in, in his initial conversation with Robot Man, he says, well, they're going to sign up any, any day now. I just know it. Like, he had a feeling about it. And then when they announced it, he's like, what do you mean you're going to do that? Right. Like he's yeah. surprised. It's like, what? <laughs> That's bizarre. That really Sign is. Up. No more JSA? It doesn't sound possible. I know it's a prob- It's probably supposed to be that beginning of a friendship, gentle ribbing between friends type of thing. But some of the comments that he makes to Robot Man seem terribly insensitive. You know, he's constantly calling attention to the fact that this dude is a robot, you know, that he's mm. he's stuck in a robotic, you know, non-human body. And that just seems kind of mean, you know, in, in certain aspects. I mean, and, and we'll see that much later in this series where Robot Man comes to really lament his condition. You know, the fact that he was a human being, you know, he, he's he, but now he's a, a, a human brain in this robot body yeah there's a and bunch it, of great stories involving robot man coming yeah in that i really enjoy that add they're soap opera ish but they're like superhero soap opera ish so it's okay to like it right but it would just be like you know if you had a if you had somebody that you were just getting to know and you were trying to be friends with them and they were you know they couldn't walk or they couldn't screw or you know they didn't have their arms or something and you constantly referred to it and made jokes about it that just seems wrong and insensitive but then maybe it that's a, it's maybe horrendously that's, insensitive yeah so that that was all I meant by that but then again maybe that's a twenty first century perspective projected onto oh. a 1940s era too i don't i don't know i've got a real quick question to throw it in uh-huh. um johnny quick comes in on page 15 and says anybody ever tell you you'd make a great butler sir justin and adam says and i quote make it shining night johnny nobody else knows his real name <laughs> who gives a shit <laughs> yeah, if anybody know. knows his real name <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, that one. That one is a little bit wonky. Sorry, well, and actually, it's a lot wonky. <laughs> Somebody makes a reference again on page fourteen. Where is it? I'm sorry, I should have refined my notes just a little bit better. But somebody makes a reference to the Rover Boys, which is another thing I looked up. And the Rover Boys are basically it was a series of books for kids, you know, books for for young adults that were kind of the forerunner of uh, like the Hardy Hardy Boys. Boys. Yeah. Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, that sort of thing. So they were more in line with what were those books called? I'm trying to remember. There was like a series of children's books, mainly geared towards like young girls that were really popular in the 20s and 30s. 
and I'm kicking myself oh, for the not. Bobsy twins. Yes, because we had original Bobsy twins novels. When oh wow! Up because my grandmother bought them as they were coming out when she was younger, and gave them to us. I don't know where they are now. They're probably worth a crapload of money. Probably. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what Nana and Granddaddy would do. They would give us books. Off their li- out of their library for presents when they couldn't really afford to give us anything else, uh, which wasn't true because they gave us all the money for they gave my mother the the money she got from them for Christmas she would spend on us for our presents. So, um, but to have presents around the tree, we would open up books and all the girls would ha- be out of like the recipe section of the newspaper would be the wrapping paper and all the boys would get sport you know, the sporting pages, like I gave a crap, but you really can't convince <laughs> them of that. You went through that too. So you yeah. know what I'm talking about exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you have wrapped it in the comics? Maybe that's a little more germane, but they gave me a copy of the, uh, the star Wars novelization when I was a kid. So, Oh, cool. So uh, I had that, that was kind of neat to read then. Well, my very last note for this issue, page 27, the last page. All right, um, Hawkman, Shining Knight, and the uh, Mexican dude that they're with, they get zapped by this electrical thing. It kills the little Mexican dude, but uh, the other two are simply knocked unconscious. So a while later, they wake up, and Sir Justin goes, What happened? Mine invincible armor. And uh, Hawkman continues what he's saying. He says, Must have shielded you somewhat. Just as my belt of ninth metal, he doesn't say nth, he actually says ninth metal, uh, partly insulated me. (sighs) All right, not only did they misspell it, yes, again with the damn nth metal. I mean, does it it cure the common cold in athlete's foot too? I mean, Jesus Christ, with the nth metal already. Well, don't you know that's what they discovered in the 24th century? That, oh, that for headaches. That's headaches. why they don't get headaches anymore. Exactly. They all wear nth metal in their, in their little com badges. Yeah, that... no, yeah it's, oh, exactly. That's why the com badges work so well. Is because they're made of nth metal. We have solved a great mystery tonight, my friend. I, uh, our work is done. We could end the episode right now. Maybe Picard doesn't ever get a headache, but I, I got a freaking doozy right now. So. <laughs> Most people say that after talking to me for more than five minutes, so you're well in line. Very good, sir. Sadly, in this issue, um, we don't really have any uh, ads of note. They they all kind of eh, they all kind of suck, to be perfectly honest. The only one that's uh, of interest we already talked about in another uh, episode, which is the one uh, about the uh, Saturday morning lineup with yeah, Smurfs. We, uh, yeah, we did that last week. Yeah, so we're going to move directly into uh, elsewhere in the DC multiverse care of Mike's amazing world of DC comics, which you can find at www.dcindexes.com. And we are looking at books cover dated January, 1982. And what do you see, Mike? Uh, first thing I see is something I really need to read, which is DC comics presents number 41 with Superman and the Joker. And I did read this actually. I just don't. Rem- I just don't have a good firm memory of it. But I love when heroes are teamed up with villains in these books. The stories are usually really, really interesting. So uh, it has a great cover too. 
I've got this one and honestly cannot remember a dang thing about it. I, yeah, I guess I'd need to dig it out again at some point and check it out. Ross Andrew cover. And this is uh, – that one also had a 16-page preview of the new Wonder Woman that Roy Thomas That's right. was writing. So the terrible Tinseltown treasure trap treachery. I'm trying to find those issues because that was uh, the Gene Colan run and uh, love me some Gene Colan. So I'm, I'm still trying. I, I lack just a few, but I they're they're – Somewhat hard to find and very expensive when you do find them. Uh, your boy's all over this one. Jonah Hex? Yeah, you got him on two Abs- covers. Yeah, he's on uh, the cover of Justice League of America, number 198, where we've got, uh, let me enlarge that image, we've got Jonah Hex, Cinnamon, Batlash, and uh, Kiwanote, the uh, Scalp Hunter, are all facing off. It's it's a good old-fashioned Western stand-out-in-the-middle-of-the-street draw type of cover, and they're facing off with uh, the elongated man, Green, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, uh, Zatanna, and The Flash. You know, and that's a much, much better story that does, unfortunately, again involve the Lord of Time, but it is a uh, much better time travel story involving Jonah Hex and the Justice League than that one that we covered a while back. Well, you know, if you were to replace Cinnamon with El Diablo, you have the lineup from... DC Universe Trail of Time, which I finally, uh, not finally, which I finished uh, a couple days ago, and man, what a great novel. Oh, God, the ending was kind of wonky, but anything involving the Western characters just Mm -hmm. had me going and going and going, and I thought that writer nailed each and every one of the characters he was dealing with, not only the Western ones but uh, Superman as well. So we really need to devote absolutely uh, back to the bins to that thing because it was awesome. Because you're, you're up till now, you're the only other person I know that's ever read that. And, uh, and you, well, you listen to the audio book, yes, right? But it's, it's yeah. you know, it's graphic audio. So it's pretty much like right. reading the book. Yeah. Cause I, I actually read the novel not long ago. Um, you know, because of course it has, you know, two of my absolutely favorite characters and it. it's got Superman and Jonah Hex together in the same story. And uh, and I read it and I really really enjoyed it. But yeah, I agree with you. There's there were some wonky elements, but overall I really liked it because come on, hell, it's Superman and Jonah Hex together. So yeah, you, know, you sounded awesome. like you were writing ad copy there for a while. Jonah Hex and Superman together <laughs> in one adventure. <laughs> Speaking of Jonah Hex, we got the cover to uh, Jonah Hex number fifty six here. El Diablo back in the book. That's pretty cool. I don't remember who draws him in that particular one, but I love this cover by uh, Tony DiZuniga of Hex walking down the mean streets of some town and around on every rooftop and around every corner, there's some somebody waiting to ambush Hex. <laughs> Poor guy. He just can't catch a break. Don't do it. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you. I, I have now heard of or read enough Hex stories. <laughs> that I know it's just not going to end well. Just just leave them alone. Everything will be fine. Uh, that Flash 305, I guess we'll have to cover at some point. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right, because it's got the Golden Age Flash it's, in it. It's yeah. that Carmine Infantino era where he was drawing with a ruler. <laughs> uh, he looks beefy, the Golden Age Flash, doesn't he? Doesn't he yeah, look kind of... He's, he's, he's been eating some Hostess fruit pies. So <laughs> those things are like 500 calories a piece. Jesus. No wonder I gained weight in the summer of 96. <sighs> what Number else we got here? Damn it. Um, 
uh, Gene Colan on Batman. Love that stuff. Oh, man. Well, speaking of Gene Colan, uh, one of your favorite miniseries, and a miniseries I absolutely love, had its first issue this month. Phantom oh, my Zone God, yes. One. Oh. Yes. You know, I feel very badly. If, if any of these guys are listening, I'm going to go ahead and issue an apology right now. But ages ago, ages and ages ago, like like literally months ago, we sat down on, uh, I think it was for Back to the Bins that we did it, with a whole cast of, of guys. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to even remember how many people were there, but it was like me and Chris Honeywell and Will Sanchez and Juan Castro. I think Mike, Mike Petit was there. I think Chris Johnson was there for at least part of it. Maybe some other folks I'm, I'm forgetting. I apologize. And we recorded the first two issues of Phantom Zone, your coverage of the Phantom Zone. We were going to do the entire miniseries and really in-depth coverage coverage. And we were having, you know, the typical like monsoon season here in Georgia and just having a hellacious time. And so all we got done was two episodes and that was it. Nothing else ever got recorded. The episodes never got edited or scored or finished or anything. They've just been sitting. And I swear one of these days, even if we have to start over anew, I really want to do that because that is one of my absolute favorite DC Universe stories of all time is that Phantom Zone miniseries. It is damn good. If if you guys in the listening audience have never read that, you've got to check it out. It's epic. You should be able to find it pretty cheap, too. Yeah, it's I see not, it at Ben's. Yeah, it's, it's not... It, I bought it when I was buying, like, back in 2001, 2002, when I was really amping up on getting my pre-crisis Superman collection in order. I... All on one day, bought the Phantom Zone, the Krypton Chronicles, and a couple other like mini series and stuff that was associated, like the specials and all that. And I sat down and read this Phantom Zone one, and uh, for God, that's why we were at the laundromat because the dryer was broken, so we had to we had to wash it home, and then take everything to the laundromat to dry it. And I was sitting there reading this, and it was just. It was the first time, I think, in comics that the Phantom Zone villains were ever treated as scary. Yes. Like, oh my god, they have all the powers of Superman, and they want to kill everybody. That's a legitimately frightening concept. Yep. That no one, I mean, really, in all the Phantom Zone stories that I've read, it's just like, oh, 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 the Phantom Zone villains escape. They're going to beat up on Superman. Oh, there they go, back in the Phantom Zone. Yeah, they were they were goofy. I don't rem- I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, you know, I've read tons of Phantom Zoner stories over the years prior to that series, and I don't remember any of them where they really got out and did any any serious shit. You know, like caused any like major damage or mayhem or or killed anybody. And this series, I mean, the the kid gloves were off. They get out, and they're total amoral bastards intent on just causing as much death and destruction as they possibly can, you know, during the course of the series. And and it's uh, it's fantastic because for 1982, it's very... Um, I don't know what the word. I don't want to say grim and gritty because then that conjures up a whole different thing. I don't want to say adult because that conjures up a different thing. But it is so far ahead of its time as yeah, far I would as agree uh, with that. you know. Just the it, it's really amped up. It set the bar 
for that type of story, I think. It, it changed how that type of Superman story was looked at, I think. Speaking of uh, Superman issues, they have a uh, Action Comics number 527 is yeah. a Lord Satana story. I think this is might be the first Lord Satana story. And there is a character that post-crisis was so much more interesting than he was pre-crisis. I mean, the stories are interesting, don't get me wrong, because, it, you know, his name is Satan. So so it was Superman, like the pre-crisis Superman fighting basically a personification of Satan. But the what they did with him at first in the, in the post-crisis world, God, I love that design. And it looks so much better drawn by yeah. anybody but Kurt Swan. <laughs> now, is this the story where this isn't the one where he gets split in two, is it? I think it is. Oh, okay, because I love that story. That was, but I don't think I ever did read. I think I came in an issue or two into that that uh, storyline, so I never saw the initial issue where he got ripped in two. As a matter of fact, I think where I came in was actually when one of the Supermen was in the very opening scenes of... It's an issue of Teen Ti- New Teen Titans. I think it's number 24, I think. And the Titans come to the JLA satellite, and they talk to Superman, and, and he's like, gee, I wish I could help you, but I'm literally like half a man, you know? And uh, I think that's where I got... In- I picked that issue up, and I think that's where I got intrigued. Is like, oh, wow, what's going on with Superman? And then I started picking up... Superman's book to get the story and just fell in love with that because it's just that was just a great period of Superman. He he was you know, there were two of them. One was in the past and one was in the present, and they were both like like golden age Superman level of strength because they were just weakened so badly. Mm-hmm. It was really a good, good story. I like that one. Uh Adventure Comics number four eighty nine, Dial H for Hero, don't give a crap. Um <laughs> New Adventures of Superboy number 25. Superboy does what every staunch conservative in the 60s and 70s wanted to do. He knocks a hippie's head off. <laughs> you said almost exactly what I was going to say, which was he, he does what you should do to dirty, dirty hippies. He punches his head right off. Yeah. Uh, I love it. <laughs> world's Finest Comics number 275. I think this is like where the start of my World's Finest collection. What an awesome cover. Yeah, on that thing, it is just it is just amazing. Sorry for the click. It's a Ross Andrew uh, cover, and it says, "Some say the world will end in fire. Some say ice, and it's Batman and Superman. Ah, Metropolis ablaze, Gotham City frozen, nonstop cover to cover action. Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, Shazam! Shazam. Oh, I love that. What love that the Shazam one? stuff in World's Finest." Especially the Don Newton stuff. They may have all been Don Newton now that I think about it, but I'm not positive. Zatanna and Hawkman. Yeah. It's a dollar comic, too. Man, that shit would get you a lot of money, a story back in that day. We also have a very, very rare Jim Aparo drawing a cover on uh, the Legion of Superheroes, a spotlight on Wildfire issue. Nice cover on that. I think inside, though, I I don't think it's a pair. I think it's actually. I, I want to say it might be Steve Ditko. Well, that, that uh that that image in the lower cover of where he like has his hel- his helmet open and the girls looking all shocked. Yeah, many women that I've been intimate with have had the same. Uh, 
<laughs> expression on their face, uh, and I'm not saying surprise and 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 delight. I'm I'm talking abject terror of uh, of seeing me naked for the first time. So uh, I'm sure my wife can can really feel for that woman's pain. I really I really think she can. That is so much TMI right now. I can't even tell you. You got anything else on this one? You know, I'm looking, and no, I I don't think so. I think we nailed the uh, the really awesome ones on this one. Well, we're going to take a break, and then afterwards we're going to come with a cover that is on this page, but we decided to cover the entire story. So when we get back, Brave and the Bold, number 182. He was a hero to some a villain to others. And wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. I got the dogs and the burgers on the grill. The female companions are already deep in the first annual strip volleyball game. <laughs> and Come on, Gillen, you know you have to take off your bottom. McLean is regaling Kirk with dirty stories. This is going to be the best summer ever. Ah, true that. It is the better a dark summer of fun. Hey, Michael. Hey, wait a minute. What's Shag doing here? You invited him. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's cool, I guess. Just one thing I don't get. What are all these cowboys doing here? You know what's going down. They're here for the contest, man. Ah, the better in the dark summer of fun cowboys contest. Yeah, know that. For the summer of 2010, we are doing a special contest where we want you to give us a thousand-word essay on your favorite cowboy movie or television show or a thousand-word weird western tale. These are the rules of the contest. We're going to go over them very quickly because there's not that many. Entries have to be no more than a thousand words. We will have these things. Please, folks, no 30-page essays. Women who think that their looks will influence us are heartily encouraged to send pictures. The winner is entirely up to myself and Tom, so no bitching about that. Affiliates of Hopework Press and Earth2.net are not eligible for this contest. And bribes not accepted, at least not while Tom is watching. Also, we should mention, you have to register at the official Better Than Dark boards at betterthedark.proboards.com. There will be a space set aside for you to submit your story or essay. And what do they get? Well, what they get is Volume 1 of the Grimjack Omnibus by John Ostranda and Timothy Truman. This is a wonderful packet that collects stories from Star Slayer issues 10 through 17 and Grimjack issues 1 through 13 as originally published by First Comics between 1983 and 1985. If you like cowboys, you like 
swashbucklers, you like demons, you like racy-looking critters with four legs, this is the comic for you. Just by hearing this John Strand and Timothy Truman should be enough incentive for you to get it. This is a great way for you to get one of the two great comic series of the 80s in one package. That's not all you That's get. not all we got. We also have my first novel, Dylan and the Voice of Odin. So you're going to get an autographed copy by me, Natural Lamente, included in that package. But yet, there's more! There's no more! You will also get a copy of the legendary Frontier Publishing Presents, the number one and only issue. Why should you want to have a copy of this? Because in it is the first and to date, notice I said to date, comic book story featuring my character Dylan. In the story entitled, Dylan and the Escape from Tosegio. Woohoo! The story is by me. The script is by Russ Anderson, mm -hmm. who is the editor of the other All prize. going to be given away. And the art is by Alex Kozakowski. And speaking of Russ Anderson, Pulpworks Press has agreed to give us, as the final bit of our little prize package, a hot-off-the-presses copy of How the West Was Weird, edited by Russ, and featuring stories by the both of us. As well as a bunch of other talented yes, people. Bill Katepi, Joel Jenkins, lots of great people that we've talked about in very glowing terms in the past. It's got Aztec mummies. It's got zombie towns. It's got supernatural gunslingers. It's got... They could Mexican chicks. What more do you need to know? I wish I wasn't giving yes. this stuff away so I could enter the contest and get it. The deadline for this contest is August 28th, and we will announce the winner on a future episode sometime in September of Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark Summer Funk Cowboy Contest from Better in the Dark and Public Press. Get to writing, partner. The deadline is August 28th. And join us all summer at www.earth2.net and www.loudcaster.com backslash channels backslash 214 hyphen movies about girls for all the madness on Better in the Dark Summer of Fun! While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big pain. Wherever there's a pain, you'll find a Spider-Man. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Batman. This 
looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. Alrighty, everybody, we are back with uh, the previously promised Brave and the Bold, number 182. This came out the exact same month as the All Star Squadron issue, so it's January 1982 cover date, 60 cent cover price, and once again, Scott and I cry. On the cover, just, we have what? I just thought of something. What music are you going to put under this segment? Because I'm telling you right now, if you use the music from the current series, that's uh, the animated series, I- I'm done. I'm done, man. I'm out. No, I'll play Batman the animated series music. Sweet. That makes a lot more sense. So I knew I was hey. friends with this reason. I'm not going to piss you off. I just keep forgetting what that reason is. That's that's right, I'm late with the check. Anyways, it's this Brave and the Bold starring Batman and Robin the X. Boy Wonder, and we have a very nice Jim Aparo cover of Batman, the Earth 2 Robin, and the Earth 2 Batwoman uh, in the middle of the street with a Batmobile careening towards him while the disembodied head of Hugo Strange looks on, licking his lips, touching himself. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that. Anyways... <laughs> The story is titled Interlude on Earth 2. It was written by Alan Brennert, with art by Jim Aparo, colored by Carl Gafford, and edited by Dick Giordano. On a dark and stormy night, Ted Knight and Dick Grayson discuss the unnaturalness of the storm and quickly go into action as Starman and Robin, respectively. The two are suddenly hit by lightning and knocked to the ground, with Starman's energy rod being knocked out of his hand as well. Suddenly, the disembodied and ghostly head of Hugo Strange appears in the sky, gripping, quote-unquote, the cosmic rod, and gives this whole speech about how finally he has the power, thanks to the rod, to destroy Gotham City. Meanwhile, on Earth-1, Batman visits a graveyard based on a weird feeling when a lightning bolt hits nearby, and suddenly Batman is face-to-face with a headstone marked Bruce Wayne. He quickly puts two and two together upon seeing the grave for Selina Wayne that he's on Earth-2, and after spooking some locals, the Dark Knight decides that he needs to find Dr. Fate so he can head back to Earth-1. Meanwhile, Robin leaves Ted Knight at Gotham Hospital, don't worry folks, he'll be fine, and runs through the Rolodex of heroes he can't depend on because they're otherwise occupied, because it's, you know, the Justice Society, and those sons of bitches are never around when you need them. Upon reaching the JSA Brownstone, he finds someone trying to break in. Leaping into action, Robin greets the would-be intruder with a savage kick. At first, Robin believes it to be his mentor, the Batman, but then realizes it has to be the Batman of Earth-1, and this story, by the way, takes place before World's Finest number 271. 
In short order, the two heroes enter the Brownstone, and after a briefing on the history of the Earth-2 Hugo Strange, complete with monsters and a supposed watery death, Batman offers to help and even throws in an offer that Robin can call him Bruce, but the older Dick Grayson is kind of an ass about this. Suddenly, again, they hear a rat-a-tat-tat of a machine gun, and when they run outside, they see Selina's panther jet trying to gun down bystanders. Robin is rather confused by this because it was destroyed years ago. The quick-thinking Batman manages to somehow leap into the cockpit and aim the plane on a collision course with a TV tower. He leaps free at the last second, but misses when he decides to grab onto a cable. Robin tells Batman that from now on they should work together after catching him, to which Batman replies by tackling Robin out of the path of a giant top. (laughs) Turns out this was an old weapon of the spinner, but before either Robin or Batman can do anything about it, a rope wraps around the tip of the top and causes it to crash into a nearby store, thus causing thousands of dollars in needless damage. (laughs) Turns out the hero, quote-unquote, responsible for that bit of senseless damage is none other than Batwoman. Introductions are made, and since the Batwoman of Earth-1 and the Batman of Earth-2 are both dead, the two are both kind of freaked out by this. Before they can do anything about it, Strange's head pops up again and rants at our heroes before the Batmobile comes tearing around the corner and tries to kill the trio. The quick-thinking Batman grabs some luggage from the trunk before telling Robin to take down the Batmobile, which the ex-boy wonder does reluctantly. Afterwards, Batman unpacks the luggage he pulled out of the Batmobile, and it turns out that there are three whirly bats. And boy, it's great that there were three of them, right? Right? Just so happened. Three of them, right there in the trunk. God, what a great coincidence. Yeah, why would there be three now that you say that? (laughs) Batman, Robin, and, um... More. Yeah. (laughs) Robin and Batwoman have a little heart-to-heart about why she is in costume again. Turns out Batwoman wanted to go into action one last time because her time as Batwoman was the only time she really felt alive. Also, it turns out she was in love with the Earth-2 Batman and feels bad for all those years she avoided him and how she really missed a golden opportunity to pick Bruce up on the rebound after Selina died. And this is her way of making up for it to Bruce in the city. Okay, that doesn't happen. Anyways, Robin reveals that the Batmobile is the real deal, leading Batman to shout, To the Batcave! On the trip uh, there, everyone has their own internal monologue. Robin resents Bruce for wearing the Batman costume. Batman thinks about Hugo Strange and how Robin has a stick up his ass. And Batwoman thinks that maybe she could turn into a cougar and jump the younger Batman's bones. Once they reach the entrance to the Batcave, Batman warns them that Strange could attack at any time, to which Robin says, no, duh. And they have a fight fight that ends in Batman telling Robin, in essence, to fucking get over it already. The heroes finally enter the cave and are immediately attacked by the giant dinosaur from Batman number 35. And with a little teamwork and a lot of luck and a good deal of acrobatic skill, they take the robot down. Suddenly, a third time, the Earth-2 Batman seems to appear and cold cocks Robin. The Earth-1 Batman realizes it's just a robot and Robin prepares to cave the robot's head in. Suddenly, a fourth time, all eyes are on an old and twisted (laughs) Hugo Strange. Strange has the cosmic rod and tells how he survived his fall and spent nearly 20 years trapped inside a broken and battered body. 
Finally, he managed to bribe a corrupt doctor to shoot him up with the Roy juice that created the monsters uh, he had created decades before, but that didn't really work out too well for Doctor Strange, and thus he is the misshapen creature they see before them. Batman moves in and struggles with Strange for the Cosmic Rod. Batman insists that Strange doesn't have the guts to kill them. And while Strange initially denies this, he eventually concedes to the point and uses the rod to kill himself. Hours later, Starman is out of the hospital and Batman starts saying his goodbyes. After giving Batwoman some false hope that he would, in fact, do her, Robin says (laughs) the next time he won't be... Robin says the next time he won't be so much of, well, a dick. Starman sends Batman away instead of using that, you know, that handy device that allows the JSA to come to Earth-1 all the fucking time. And after he is gone, Starman wonders what brought Batman to the graveyard in the first place, to which Robin replies that he doesn't know and he he isn't sure he wants to, at which point Starman goes, Jesus Christ, get over it already. (laughs) And that's the end. Now there is a... What? I just have to comment. My first uh, comment is actually going to be at the end of the story rather than the beginning. You, you commented on the fact that he doesn't use the the J. What the hell do they call that thing? The matter com- transference that's device it. or whatever it was. Yeah. Instead of using that, he uses his uh, cosmic rod. But I love what he tells Batman. He says, uh, "I'm no Doc Fate, but I." I think I can manage a one-way ticket to Earth. No, 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 no. Fuck that, dude. I, I think it's not good enough when you're talking about interdimensional travel, all right? Because I don't want to wind up in, like, you know, some weird dimension with a bunch of, you know, demons that want to eat me or something, okay? I think I can get there. Really? Why don't you get me to Earth 3, where I'm the only hero? Yeah, exactly. by everybody. Good going, Ted Knight. Why don't you go raise your kids? <laughs> Uh, my first note was there's a nemesis backup that I didn't read because it's drawn by Dan Spiegel. Oh, you are so awesome, dude! Because I, I have to say, see, at least at least we're not alone. When when God, who was it that? Uh, oh, I think it was Paul Kupperberg that wrote us to say that we were wrong about Dan Spiegel's art that he's actually a fan, and I I felt kind of bad, but you know, I'm you sorry. You like what I, you like. Yeah, and you know, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it either. I'm looking at this, going, you know, I'm trying to find something nice to say about it. I got nothing because it's. I'm. I'm sorry. I, mean, just... I would have liked to have seen Aparo draw the Nemesis backup. In all honesty, because uh, the one Batman Nemesis team up was really freaking good. And didn't Aparo draw that? I, I I don't I don't remember. I really don't remember. I don't know that. I think I have that issue. I don't think I've ever read it. So what do you got as far as notes on this? Oh, I've got oh, I've got tons and tons of notes here. <clears throat> First off, I cannot stress this point enough. The art in this issue is fantastic. Mm-hmm. In all fairness, if it weren't for the awesome art in here, I don't know that this would be all that hot of a story because it's got all kinds of wonky written all over it. Yes, but it does. Be- but because the art is so great in this, I, I'm giving it a wide pass. I really am. I, I will freely admit that. On uh, page three, on the uh, the uh, opening uh, splash here, when Batman's looking back at his own grave, now I know that this guy was probably an infink when this story came out, but tell me that that does not look like a Norm Brayfogle Batman right there. Yes, the cape especially. 
Yeah. Well, you know, actually, he could, he wouldn't be that young. Because what? When did he start doing Batman? Like eighty nine, ninety seven, eighty eight, somewhere around. Oh, there. was it? Oh, okay, yeah. So he wasn't he wasn't that young then, but still, yeah, it would be many years before he was actually there. Now I forget, and you know, I feel like an idiot for this because it was not that long ago that you and I just covered these stories where Batman died and all that. But I forget. How, how does this world, you know, Earth two? How did Earth the people of Earth two's Gotham City? How? Do they know that Batman is dead, and do they know how he died? I, I'm still confused about that. Doctor F- Doctor Fate made them forget. Yeah, I thought so. I was confused by that as well. I'm confused, yeah, because there's a big deal made about it. Because you know, as soon as as our Batman, you know, Earth One Batman gets to Earth Two, he's swinging around. He he, he does something to save some citizens, and they flip out. But 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 you're dead, and they run away screaming. Yeah, I and was Batman's, confused about that as well. Yeah, and I was like, wait a minute, do they even know that their Batman is dead? So yeah, I'm I'm totally confused. Anyway, um, oh my god, this is an awesome, awesome page. Page five, just the art of of Robin swinging around. Because as I've said before, I love this Robin costume. This is my favorite. Well. I, I I like this one. I don't know. I was going to say it's my favorite costume, but you know, I'm still a sucker for the original Robin costume. I really am. You know, Dude, Pixie so Boots. Am I. Yeah, I really I mean, am. Really, and and we shouldn't be because we're grown men. But drawn right, that costume is awesome. Yeah, George uh, George Perez made mm-hmm. me really really love and respect that original. But you know, I, I like this one too. The, this could actually be my favorite. I really there's something about this one that's really dynamic. But anyway, I love the art on this whole page as Robin's just kind of swinging around, thinking to himself. Now he makes a big deal here. He says, um, "All right." He comes out of the hospital and he's he's trying to think of people that can help him, and he thinks about um, the Huntress and Power Girl, and he says, "Nope, they're off visiting uh, Clark Kent and his wife." Green Lantern, he's busy. Uh, Jay Garrick, he's busy. All these other people. And he said, and this blasted storm has ionized the atmosphere, rendering my JSA signaler useless. I would like to remind Robin that your JSA signaler is fucking useless anyway, because it's long been established by now that they all just completely ignore it. (laughs) So it wouldn't matter if it was working or not, because they're not going to answer it. Well, if 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 the atmosphere is ionized, I mean, any minute now he could get onto the mirror universe where he has a goatee. Oh, that would be awesome. Now, you already covered the footnote about World's Finest 271. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yes, moving sir. moving right along, has Batman never seen Robin in this outfit before? Was Batman not part of that? Oh, God, what? It was like JLA 55, I think. See, that bugged me, too, because this Robin lent that costume... To the Earth One Robin. Earth One Robin. So he's seen it before. Wasn't Batman part of that? I think he was. I thought he was, but I don't know. I need to look it up, and I was just, I just didn't do it. I'm sorry. I suck. Um, what else we got? Oh, there was a word used here that I, I had no idea what it was. It says uh, later he surgically transformed three mental patients into. Uh, acromagellic, acromagellic, or acromagellic? 
monsters and tried to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what the hell is this word? So I lo- looked it up. It basically has to do with uh, with gigantism. So basically what he means is that he turned them into giant monsters. He was just using a much fancier word. And then Batman gunned him down with machine gun. <laughs> awesome! Okay, my biggest beef with this issue. I was going to say nitpick, but you know, this really isn't so much of a nitpick. It's a full-fledged beef. All right, page eight. Uh, and Robin swings down, he saves Batman, and then he tells him, he, he's kind of fussing at Batman, and he says, now then, while I have your attention, you're not on Earth-1 anymore, Batman, and I'm not your junior partner, but a grown man, about your age, I'd say. Eh, wrong. All right, say Robin was nine years old. That's as young as I'm willing to go with Robin being, you know, otherwise it's just freaking irresponsible for him to be taking a kid younger than that out, you know, crime fighting with him. So say Robin was nine years old on his debut in Detective Comics number 38 in 1940, right? All right. This story right here is cover dated January 1982. So let's, for simple math, let's call it 1981. So nine years old. In 1940, plus 41 years, that's 50 years old. Dude's at least 50. Yeah. So, Batman. What, 30? Yeah, at most. I mean, nine times out of ten, when somebody would write to the answer man and say, uh, how old is Superman? How old is Batman? Typically, the answer was 29 years old or younger. So, yeah, nowhere near the same age. Unless. They're pulling some time wonkiness thing where it's actually not supposed to be 1981 or 82 in Earth 2, but I call bullshit on that, too. So, yeah, nowhere nowhere near the same age. All right. My first thought on whichever page it is, I forget. I, I failed to make a note. But anyway, was, uh, okay, why didn't Helena stay on her own Earth? And seek out this Batwoman in Batman Family number 20. But then I remembered that she actually went there looking for Batman. And Batman pawned her off on that world's Batwoman. And then that world's Batman then pawned her off onto Batgirl. So I just kind of got a kick out of that, that there actually was a Batwoman on this world that ultimately she just could have. She was also retired. So. That's true. That's true. And she may not have known her identity either. I, I hadn't thought of that till just this moment. But uh, now, I tried to find something on this Batwoman. And the most I could find was that um, Batwoman of Earth-1 had just died not long before this in the pages of Detective Comics 485, which I now want to really find a copy of. It's one of the the few issues from this period that I actually don't have in my collection. However, I was trying to find some information on this Batwoman of Earth 2. And as near as I can figure it, this may very likely be the first and last appearance of this Batwoman. Well, you know, I'll argue that only because I consider her 1950s appearances to be Earth 2. But what I was Batman didn't have an oval around his bat symbol. That's true. Yeah, the other you're okay. You're right. Yeah. See, I was looking at some. I couldn't tell you where it was now, but I was looking at something that basically said that you could consider every Batwoman appearance up until they said 
specifically Earth One Batwoman, you could consider them both exactly the same person. And yeah. I was, I was I'm actually pretty... like, that's a little weird, but yeah, I guess I could go with that. I just, I just, I look at it like that because when I think of those old Batman stories, I think, uh, you know, with Batwoman, because those were some of the first Batman comics I ever read. Right. I consider those Earth Two just because of the time period they take place in. And the general era air about them, you know, the atmosphere of the stories are very golden age, even though it was the 1950s, because this was before the new look really came in to define them. So, in fact, I was really surprised to find out there was a Batwoman of Earth One. You know, because I'm uh, she just doesn't fit in that world. It just makes sense that it was Batman and Robin until Batgirl came around, and now you're trying to shoehorn in all those adventures, and it just doesn't play for me. It really doesn't. That was one of those moments that later on kind of drove me crazy in the post-crisis universe is that she's kind of retconned away. Yes. But then there was a later story. I want to say it was part of the Kingdom event, which was the sequel to Kingdom Come. Yeah, where he looks at her and says, Kathy. Yeah, and he suddenly has a moment of recognition. Yeah, yeah, that bugged me. But that was just, I think, more of Mark Wade and Grant Morrison, you know, trying to push their hypertime concept. Yeah. Where all of the worlds before the crisis died, but now there's all these other infinite worlds out there where anything's possible and you can have flashes of memories of things that never happened. And it's just like, I'll just fucking say that the Wait. multiverse is back and yeah. get on with life. I well, I have to admit, I actually kind of liked the idea of hypertime. I'm probably in the extreme minority with that, but I actually did kind of dig on that concept because it was a way to kind of bring it back without fully bringing it back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but, but I'm yeah, not a shit and get, or get off the pot. Type yeah, of guy. So it's just like, Ult- yeah. Ultimately, I, I totally agree with you, but I, I think it was a nice way to 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 kind of get. You know, it's to kind of have your cake and eat it, too, if you know what I mean. I, but I agree with you that ultimately it comes down. Well, I don't know. See, I, I think I'd rather have hyper time than half-assing. You know, where we're like, you know, well, the the multiverse is kind of back, but there's only 52 of them. And it's like, what? You yeah, know, that's so. kind of like bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But, um. That's, that sounds like DC soft-pedaling something, and they would never do anything like that <laughs> in the past five years. Well, let me ask Assholes. you also, and I cannot believe I'm going to reference this book because I, I really, again, I know I'm really in the minority. Please don't write in and tell me what an idiot I am. I already understand that everybody else loves this friggin' book, but Batman the Killing Joke... Isn't there a picture on his desk at the in the Batcave that has Kathy Kane in the picture with him? Yep. Yeah. So okay. You're right. So that's not just a hyper time thing, but uh, yeah. Now we're gonna get flooded with letters. Well, you don't like you don't like Killing Joke. You must be a moron. Yeah. Well, all right. Whatever. Best thing I about just, the Killing okay. Joke was the Joker flashbacks. Other than that, it's a pretty weak ass story that leads. After the Joker has shot Barbara Gordon through the spine and crippled her for the rest of her life, they're sharing a couple laughs. No, that that would be the moment where Batman has given him yet another freaking beating. 
You know, I consider myself quite the Alan Moore fan to the point of almost being an Alan Moore apologist, almost. But I gotta, I gotta just lay it on the table. I hate that book top to bottom. I, I don't, I don't find any redeeming qualities in it at all. I really can't stand that book, and I don't understand how in the hell it keeps making the the list of like the top Batman stories of all time. I really because don't. Because it was a dark, edgy Batman at a time when everybody loved dark, edgy Batman drawn by two British guys. But you know what? There's plenty of dark, edgy Batman stories that are actually good. But anyway, like I said, I'm just now digging myself just, a deeper, yeah. <laughs> now you're just talking crazy, sir. <laughs> um, lastly, and you know, you actually cleared some of this up for me, which I'll, I'll point out. But um, my original th- note here, my original thought was, how in the hell is Starman's Cosmic Rod making such like absolutely perfect duplicates of all these vehicles right down to like the contents of the Batmobile's trunk? But then I realized as you were doing your uh, your synopsis that I was wrong about that, that it turns out that some of the vehicles were real that he was yeah, pulling the out of the Batcave. Yeah. Somehow I missed that when I read this the first time. But but does that include this goofy looking cat plane? I have no idea. I think that's one of those don't think about it moments. Yeah, you know? that's what I was kind of thinking as well. Because <laughs> he says... Uh, Strange is toying with us, using Starman's cosmic rod to recreate menaces for my predecessor's uh, career. And I'm thinking, I could get that if it was just like a projection of light or something. But then he actually gets into the cockpit, and there's dials, and there's, you know, there's uh, labels on the And I'm like, no, that's, just, that's way too freaking detailed to be some light construct or something, but... That's all I got for this one. You know, despite being overly critical of it and, and admittedly it is wonky, I still enjoyed the hell out of this issue. I, I thought it was pretty cool. I really did. Um, I don't actually have too many notes. I mean, I, I made a lot of the notes I would have made uh, in, the, in the synopsis, especially concerning how creepy Batwoman is throughout this whole thing, where she really just wants, she just wants to fuck Bruce, and she really just wants to do him, like, right then and there. <laughs> okay, m- maybe not completely, but still, she's she's really creepy towards him, and, I mean... She's kind of needy throughout this entire story, and I'm kind of wondering what her, her motivation for coming into action is. I mean, she gives it as she wanted to, you know, show Batman some respect one final time, but it's like she's all creepy around Batman. She's kind of, you know, that 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 panel on page 12 where she puts her her hand on Dick Grayson's face, it looks like he's about to hit her. Like, he just can't, just like, get your hand off me, woman. You you disgust me. <laughs> um, Dick Grayson was just an asshole throughout this entire story. He was kind of a dick, um, no pun intended. <laughs> but, you know, I understand where he's coming from, but, dude, seriously, really? This guy has nothing to do with what happened. He can't help that he's Bruce Wayne from another Earth where there's a Batman. It's just like, basically, I understand it's the mourning process, but, you know, if if Huntress can call him uncle, you can kind of give him a pass. You know? Seriously. But I I like that Batman calls him out, though, at that one. You know, you don't see Batman get fed up like this very often with people, (laughs) and he does. He's just like, stop being an asshole! (laughs) 
It's great. What is it? Blast it, man. Give it a rest. I can't help being who or what I am. I'm sorry if that upsets you, but I didn't ask to come here. You think it's fun being in a world where an older version of yourself has died? Try facing your own mortality like that sometime, Robin. It's not very pleasant. Now get off my ass. (laughs) At which point he kicks him square in the nuts. (laughs) Um... The Aparo art is awesome throughout this entire story, with one exception. Uh-oh. Batwoman's mask never looks good. But is that his fault, though? Or is it the fault of the mask? No, I mean, I'm serious with that question, because she does have one of those uh, masks that I think it would be hard to make it look really good. I guess I could see that. Oh, but, you're, but you're right, though. You know that I'm, I'm looking at page twelve there, and the couple of like straight-on shots of her face. You're you're right. That's it's weird because Batman and Robin look fantastic, especially at the the bottom, the fifth panel with Batman looking to the side. That's yeah. a great picture. But then the one to the left of it of her just kind of looking like all wistfully at him. That's really not a very good picture. But the the whole thing with Hugo Strange just it's it's very tenuous as far as being like a good plot. It's just you know like he's just conjuring all this shit up out of thin air, and whatever the writer can think of is something he can do. And it's just like what? And I didn't even know Batman had robots. Did you? You know, I wondered about. I, I should have made a note about that because I actually did wonder about that at one point. When when he walks out and. Uh, Batman says, uh, must be one of the original Batman's robots. I'm thinking, all right, I know Superman had robots, but yeah. <laughs> now, my historical note, because the, the, at one point they mentioned the spinner, and I'm like, who in the hell is the spinner? <laughs> so I went to, as I mentioned before, the Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes, Volume 1, Batman. A cunning criminal clad in a bizarre metallic costume and equipped with a diabolical arsenal of spinning weapons, including a weird rifle-like weapon which unleashes deadly, quote-unquote, spinning buzzsaws and a, quote-unquote, giant glass-impregnated fan whose whirling blades reflect dazzling beams of sunlight to bedazzle would-be pursuer, who commits a series of spectacular crimes in February 1960, each of which reflects his inexplicable preoccupation with spinning objects, as when he robs the headquarters of the Cool Fan Company or the offices of the Gotham Drill Company, the spinner is in reality Swami Yamar, a Gotham City fortune teller. Appeared once in Batman number 129 and never again. <laughs> For damn good reason, it and sounds I'm like, like. Wow. Is this one of those cases where this was a comic the writer read as a kid Could and it be. just always stuck with him? And this was his chance to pull it out of his ass? Because that's an ass pulling villain. That, that, no. that, that's a that's a three percenter, basically. <laughs> Something just occurred to me. I cannot believe I didn't think of this before. I, I, I guess I'm still stuck on the previous note, but 
if this robot is good enough to whoop ass on Batman and Robin, why the hell aren't they using this Batman robot? <laughs> why isn't it out on patrol? That's a good question. It's a very good question, actually. I'm frankly surprised as well. Ah. Uh. I have to say that just suddenly just just took this whole story down a couple of notches for me. <laughs> well, just look at the cover again. Oh, that's there awesome. you go. There's your moment but, of zen. But you know, wackiness and everything aside, you know, kind of cool villain, but used in an extremely lame way. Aside. This is a typical issue of Brave and the Bold the way I remember them. Yeah, that I'll, I'll it's agree not with that. the strongest story. It's not the most tight story with, you know, making perfectly logical sense and all that. It's one of those stories where let's get the guys together, you know, let's give them what they want and maybe even throw in some extra heroes, have a nice, quick, you know, maybe even a little bit stupid resolution and, and call it an issue. And that's the way <laughs> I remember it. Yeah, but you know it, it's it's better than some of them. It's better than a lot of them. I remember, but you know this goes up a, a huge notch with you know it, it, he could have gotten away with just simply you know Batman meets you know the the Earth Two Robin and they have a team up. But you, you know you throw in Starman, you throw yeah. in the Earth Two Batwoman. Suddenly it just it, it takes a whole new thing. You know you, it, it's giving you more than than what was advertised on the cover. I like that. I enjoy it. I mean, it's 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 not the best of these, to be sure. No, uh, I, th I I really honestly think that uh, one ninety seven is the best of the Earth Two Brave and the Bold stories. Uh, that tells the story of how Bruce and Selena got married on that world. But um, you know, it's got like you said, it's got great Jim Aparo art. The you know, and it's it's fun. I mean, really and truly, it's just fun to see these guys get together because you really didn't see. The Earth Two, I mean, you always saw Earth Two Flash and Earth Earth One Flash getting together, and they had a few adventures of the Earth Two Green Lantern and Earth One Green Lantern. You never really saw the Bat or Superman families getting together. Yeah, off the top of my head, you know, the only one I can recall is uh, that awesome DC Comics Presents annual, annual with the two Supermen. Oh yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Wouldn't you like oh. that to be redrawn by George Perez, though? Oh, I don't know. I, I love it just the way it is. I, I need it to switch that Buckler, back. So yeah, right. But still, well, I wonder what year that is. When that might come along in our in our coverage? Because that that's a oh man, that's a great book. I hope we're not past it already, because otherwise we'll just have to backtrack and cover that. Because that's that's too good to pass up. Oh, that's man. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> that wouldn't make no never mind to me. So, now, granted, it's been many years since I read it, and granted, I do not remember Brave and the Bold one ninety seven whatsoever. Nineteen eighty two, just to tell you. Oh, okay. So it's so we it's gotten there yet. yeah, it's some point this year then. But um, not not to not to be argumentative, but I would say just based purely on my memories, I would I would argue that uh, Brave and the Bold one eighty four is the is the best of these. Uh, you know, Batman goes to the Bat family of of Earth yeah. stories because I love that one. It's a good one. Yeah, it's we'll be really covering good. that one pretty soon. Uh huh. 
couple weeks, actually. Yeah. So I think that's it for... Uh, that's all I got, anyway. What else you got? Uh, nothing. That's it for me, too. So we're going to hit some emails up. We got one from Sean Engel that is uh, titled Human Target. It says, Greetings, gentlemen. Another great episode of Tales in the Bag. I, again, have to compliment you on the descriptions slash synopsis you give to the issues. I have been muddling over the idea of toe-renting these issues for some online site that allows people to rent them in order to better follow along. However, I'm not certain if I were to rent, okay, I guess you get the metaphor, certain issues. <laughs> I might be opening myself up to hackery and other such nonsense due to my lack of network skills. Nah. Do you have any advice on the issues of two renting programs and of setting them up? I would love to hear them. Uh, not on the air. Not on the air. <laughs> you might be getting an email with some links from Gott Skardner and Michael Maley, as my friend uh, Neil Bailey over at the Superman homepage has to put up with his evil duplicates. Uh, we also have evil, evil duplicates. Oddly enough, my evil version does not have a goatee, and Scott's does. So it's very strange. Um, <laughs> don't quite know how that works, but I guess, you know, if it's going to be the evil version, it's going to be the evil version. On some of the inter-issue banter, I would soak by the series Jesus versus Batman, if only to confirm <laughs> the theory that Scott has that Batman is not the invincible warrior that he's been made out to be. Seeing him get owned by the Son of God would be hilarious. <laughs> As for the sacrilege uh, aspect, I recall Superman beating up on some angels during the run of Morrison's JLA. So oh how could this God. be anywhere? Well, oh my God! Like no, I don't think it. Can. I don't think it gets worse <laughs> than that. God, I forgot about that. What? Remind me of that. I'm shit. sorry. The moment where he's fighting Asmodel and Asmodel goes yield and Superman goes never was kind of awesome, though. Yeah. Well, kind of. I. See, I have a problem with with angels being like that anyway. You know, I mean, I always thought angels were supposed to be all like sweet and nice and, you know, fluffy, cuddly, not like badasses with swords that tussle with Superman. But that's just me, I guess. Also, I'd like to put a plug in for the show Human Target. From what I hear, it's not very much like the original series by Len Wein and Carmine Infantino, which made Christopher Chance more of a body double for his clients. The show is more of a detective bodyguard type show where Chance, played by Mark Valley, is the guy you turn to when no one else will help you out. Chai McBride and Jackie Earl Haley round out the cast as his partners. The show has kind of an A-team vibe with them taking on cases the police won't, and each of the characters is given an interesting backstory, which is hinted at and slowly fleshed out during the course of the first 13 episodes. It is very cleverly written, giving each of the main cast characters interesting and intelligent dialogue to further not only the story arc, but their character's arc as well. What sold me on the show was a scene from an episode where Chance went to protect a person who was posing as a monk. When Chance first met his target, he was discussing the, the death of the Flash in Crisis on Infinite Earths to some fellow monks and relating it to the story of D Jesus. When a series <laughs> could pull that kind of geekery, geeky comparison off, I knew I need to keep watching 
and I'm glad to hear it will be coming back next season as I thought the series had just hit its stride. Anyhow, keep up the good work uh, on the episodes, and I'll keep listening. Sincerely, Sean Angle. And I wanted to mention to you, Scott, that uh, a certain hero of yours from your childhood appeared as a former Christopher Chance on the on the uh, season finale, uh, Lee Majors. Oh, was uh, I, just, I just hope that when he moves, they they put in the sound. That would be awesome. But from what I was listening to Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson talk about on Back to the Bins, it hinted that Lee Majors' Christopher Chance was the Len Wein, Carmine Infantino one. Now, I don't remember Carmine Infantino doing Human Target. I thought or that it was uh, Dick Giordano did the Human Target. Am I, you know, I said it because of the email, but I'm just basically trying to make the point that it's the former. Right, right. Like, like this is a new Christopher Chance, but all those stories still happened. Which, you know what? If you do that really subtly, that's kind of cool. I that like is cool. That. I like that a lot, as a matter of fact. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> what do we got next? All right, up next, we've got one from our old buddy, Jose Rivera, and he just writes about Huntress episode, it says. He says, hey, guys, uh, let me say for all the worrying you guys are doing about these Huntress stories, I have to say this episode came out extremely well. I know going through the backup Huntress uh, had in Wonder Woman was your main concern, but even then, I really enjoyed this episode. You really have to appreciate how awesome Batman Family was and a good majority of the uh, dollar comics DC put out back then. As I've said before, I have a few uh, of these thanks to my aunt, and I always loved any DC series that originally cost a dollar because I knew I would uh, I would be getting a lot of story at once. I think out of all the Batman family issues you mentioned, the one that has Huntress in all the stories was my favorite. The stories were okay in some parts, but it got me to thinking how you really, uh, how you can't really do this in today's comics. Well, you could try it, but it wouldn't be as good. You would probably be under the 80 page giant banner. Or if they were to make a comic like this, it would be dismissed as it doesn't really tie into the current month's big event. That's a very good point. I miss the days of the anthology-type comics, and I miss the days of short stories that fell under really good or so crappy I can't believe it's in here. But hey, (laughs) there are a few more stories to read, so don't jump off a bridge. The one thing I never got about Batman Family, though... What the hell was the demon doing in it? I mean, Man-Bat, I understand. Batgirl, I understand. The demon, however, I never understood what his relation was uh, in the Batman f- or in the Bat family uh, that could possibly warrant him being in the title. You know, that's a very good point. I remember wondering the same sort of thing as a kid, and I don't know what conclusion I ever came to. I just was like, all right, yeah, I guess. I just kind of ran with it. Uh... You guys know I'm frothing at the mouth about talk about Steel, the indestructible man. And originally, I was going to talk about how much I didn't like Don Heck's art. When looking up his career, I started to learn more about the man and all the work he's done in comics. It really made me think. There are a lot of artists and writers I'm not fond of, but I also know little of their work. When I look them up, I have a new respect for them. I, I may not love their work, but I do respect the time and effort they put in. 
So although I've asked before, I'd like to ask again, will we ever see that fabled episode of artists who never got their due? Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera, P.S. Don't worry, there wasn't uh, much I could have done with that hostess ad either. (laughs) Um, We did finally, finally get around to doing the fabled uh, artists that never got their due. What did we entitle that one, Mike? It was like underappreciated talents and comics. Talents and comics. Yeah, it was. uh, I did talk about Don Don Heck. So there. Yeah, that's right. I think I'm going purely by memory here, but I think that's episode sixty. Of Back to the Bins, if I remember properly. Yes, it was 60 because uh, Chris mentioned that he was on episode 50 and then he's on episode <laughs> 60. So. That's right. Really good episode. It's very long, but it's very epic. I think you guys will enjoy it if you haven't heard it already. And, of course, it's it, it, it will no doubt spin off a bunch of different episodes all on its own. So Somebody had an excellent idea. It may even be one of our future emails on this show. I can't remember where the email came in at, but somebody had... An excellent idea because what I want – I had an idea for an immediate follow-up which was going to be underappreciated comics, you know, just simply yeah. you know, whether it was you know, a one-off issue or a miniseries or whatever, just underappreciated comics. But somebody had a much better idea, at least I thought so, for an immediate follow-up to the underappreciated talents in comics, which was the overrated talents in comics and i think that's a hell of a good idea because we could go from one extreme of a lot of ass kissing and and recommending to kind of i don't want to say bring in the hate but kind of bring in the hate of the people that we just are like god what is the deal with this guy you know everybody loves them and they're not that great so i like that idea all righty we're ready to move on to the next one I take it you don't like that idea so much. No, I, I, I like the idea. I just I'm wondering if it if we'll just come off as being too negative is my only concern with it. But it's a good idea. I mean I can think of a couple mostly nineties era artists. And you know, when I do that whole section on Jim Lee, I'm sure we're gonna get some art uh, some letters, but uh But yeah, that uh, no, I th- I think that would be a good that would be well worth doing. I, I don't think, think we should do five. What? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I <laughs> negative schmegative. I think it could be a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> oh man. Uh, no, that, no. I, I think it would be a good idea. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always up for talking comics with a bunch of different people. So that would be great. I'd like it. Um, we got that one from Stan Johnston marked "Long Box of Love." <laughs> Are you are you the only one really uncomfortable by that? I'm, very, I'm, very. Because I'm I'm I need a I need an adult is basically what I need. But anyways, <laughs> hi guys, Stan writes. This is going to sound like I'm parroting a lot of the things you said on the podcast, but the truth is, I actually read the issues and I took notes down before listening to the show. It just worked out that our thoughts ran in much the same direction. That said, here we go with my thoughts, edited somewhat to add additional comments after listening to the podcast. First, I absolutely love the Kaluta cover from Batman 
family number 17. The issue was a double treat, as Kaluta is one of my favorite artists. And additionally, there was a Michael Golden art on the Bat- Man Bat feature. You cannot go wrong with art from either of these guys, in my opinion. Michael mentioned the more cartoony style for Golden on display here, and I wanted to mention that Golden is one of those guys with a cartoony style that I don't mind. I'm not sure why he gets a pass, because I normally don't like that style. Very nice Starlin splash, although Batman's back foot seemed to be drawn at an awkward angle. It almost looks like the next progression in the art would be (laughs) for Batman to fall on his face because he's off balance. (laughs) I thought the first part of the story was lazy, but Aparo's artwork was amazing. I have to admit that he isn't my favorite Batman artist. That would be Gene Colan, but I've always held him in very high regard. You see, you know, I like Gene Colan, but Aparo beats him to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a race with the two of them, which would be kind of interesting since one of them's dead. God, it's late. Anyways, the thing... I say goofy things when I'm tired just for everyone to know. This is the unfiltered mic. We're going to get letters. And it's not going to be my fault this time. (laughs) That was your tone. Okay. Okay. The thing with the villain having only a small, hardly noticeable scar on his face could be seen coming a mile away and was lame. In Jerry Conway's defense, however, I do have many years more reading experience in my, than my 12-year-old self did when I probably read this for the first time. Mm-hmm. The, the Huntress-Batwoman-Batgirl team-up was all over the place and went nowhere. I thought the Catwoman-Hunters confrontation was underplayed, because aside from a brief she-looks-and-sounds-like-my-mom moment, Huntress may as well have been fighting Crazy Quilt. That would have been awesome. <laughs> he gonna go pick on the cripple. Uh, there was a huge wasted opportunity there, although Rosakis was probably not the guy to pull it off anyway. Another thing that stuck out for me was the fact that Madame Zodiac actually trusted a couple of criminals to be honest enough to come back and pay her if slash when her prediction turned out to be right. It worked for the story, but made no practical sense at all. The art really sucked on this story. I've never been a big fan of Don Heck. His panels never flowed well, in my opinion, and his faces were always too angular. But he was usually at least serviceable. Here, he was very uneven, although that could be the result of having two inkers as much as anything. One of them, Vinny the Eraser Coletta. <laughs> sounds like a hitman. Man, who are you going to get to pull off that job? I'm getting Vinny the Eraser. The boss sent me to rub you out. <laughs> a few puns. That sounds like a bad Dick Tracy villain. Uh, uh, wasn't the Eraser a Dick Tracy villain? I think he might have been, yeah. Wasn't that in that... Daffy Duck cartoon from years and years ago when he faces all the Dick Tracy. Eraserhead. I think his name yeah. was Eraserhead, yeah. God, I love that cartoon. Yes, so do I. <laughs> A few positives, though, were panel 5, page 8, panel 3, page 13, and panel 4, page 18. I thought all of those looked really nice. Of course, to get those, we had to look at things like panel 1, page 8, where Poison Ivy's hair looks like a St. Bernard's ear or something. <laughs> Jim Starlin's cover for 18 was nice, except for the way Batgirl looked. Her face was just weird-looking, and her eyes seemed to be going in opposite directions. Hey, don't, make, don't make fun. You're not supposed to notice that. <laughs> don't, don't talk about that. It's rude. She's, she's still a hot redhead. It doesn't matter that she's looking in another direction. That probably, you know, for me, it would pay off better that way. Anyways, the cover she for... She by a mule. Her eyes go across. She falls down a well. Her eyes go back, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice Christmas vacation reference. Um, the cover to 19, despite being by Kaluta, was sort of boring, I thought. But Starlin's cover for 20 made up for it by featuring Ragman. He's one of those characters. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry to interrupt here. Was the cover to 19 the one with that white bat attacking the dude out in the snow? I think so. Stan, you're out of your mind, dude. That's a great cover. <laughs> Continue. Uh, he's talking about Ragman. He's one of those characters that I suspected only I gave a rat's ass about, but after listening to the episode, I realized this is me and one of Michael's friend. Uh, Brothers of the Rag Unite. Oh, wait. That just sounds totally wrong. You imagine that when Ragman's uh, wife or girlfriend has her, her, her monthly visitor that he, like, splits for, like, a week? <laughs> That's terrible. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. I really should be locked away somewhere uh, where I can't hurt people or, or or podcast. Uh, we need we need and, and but they need to serve pudding, and that's all I'm just gonna say. About oh, that. pudding! And oh, Bill man. Cosby could bring it to me. That would be awesome. I saw him the other day advertising this new TV station. He's looking. Old. Did you ever see the Jello pudding commercial where they were in the Fortress of Solitude? No. What the hell was up? I gotta find this now. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. It's it's a it's a Jello pudding commercial with Bill Cosby and a bunch of little kids, and he's doing his Bill Cosby thing, and he gives them the pudding, and they're in the fucking Fortress of Solitude the entire time, and never comment on it. Has nothing to do with Superman, but they're in the Fortress of Solitude. It drove me nuts when like I was a kid. I'd, the crystalline thought, Fortress of Solitude? Yeah, the one from Superman the movie. All I can figure was that there was this gigantic set somewhere, and somebody was like, we need to use this goddamn thing. It's just taking up space. Yeah, get Bill Cosby over here. We'll film a commercial. Yeah, I swear to God, I'm not crazy. Solitude, and, and he's got the Superman, and he's flying, and the whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I'm going to find this because there's going to be listeners now that are think I'm I'm completely out of my mind. But I swear to God that they, they don't think that already. Yeah, they probably did. That won't <laughs> prove anything. Anyway, Stan continues as we get off another digression. The Hunter's feature from 18 to 20 was, on the whole, a pretty good tale. Mm -hmm. I thought the artwork was excellent. Leighton inking Staten again certainly didn't hurt, Staten being one of those cartoony guys whose work I, I like depending on the inker. And Paul Levitz delivered a nice story tailored to, for a character in the detective mold. No supervillain intent on conquering the world, no bug-eyed aliens, just a crooked politician to fight, and a very Just Desserts ending to boot. And no, Scott, the dude kicking it wasn't a black mark on the career of the Huntress. When you think about it, it was, her, it was his own damn fault. <laughs> I can't help wondering why the Huntress didn't make the jump over to Detective Comics when Batman Family got folded into that series. Page limitations, I suppose, as much as anything. Although, I would have preferred Levitz and Staten doing the Huntress to some of the stuff they eventually ran. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. Scott, there is a Huntress miniseries from 1994 that you might want to check out if you didn't already. It was written by Chuck Dixon with art by Mike Nasser, or Netzer, as he is credited by this point in his career. Normally, I like Nasser's art, but I got a weird Frank Miller vibe off of this and didn't really care for for it to be truthful, although the story itself was a good read. As for a new Huntress series set in Earth 2, I would be all over it if DC would publish one. 
Thanks mm-hmm. for another nice episode, guys. I really enjoyed the read along feel you guys foster with the show, and I look forward to the next installment, Stan. Oh, thanks, Stan. I appreciate it. I'm wondering what what series is this he's talking about? It's a, it's a, it was a four issue miniseries that came out, like he said, in 1994. That's not the one where he was or she was banging uh, Nightwing, is it? No, that was Nightwing Huntress from 1998. Okay. No, this one it was a solo Huntress story, um, kind of Chuck Dixon bringing her more in line with the Bat verse that was going on at the time. Uh-huh. If that makes any sense, but. Um, I read it. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. I really couldn't because it's been so long. And at the time I read it, I was literally reading every Batman comic I had in chronological order. And Holy that just shit. Got through, yeah. From 1986 to 2002 took me about a year and a half to do, but I went through all of Batman detective, eventually Nightwing, Robin, shadow of the bat legends of the dark Knight. God damn, Legends of the Dark Knight. Um, everything. It was awesome. Yeah. It was amazing. I, I do not have this story or this uh, series. I'm going to have to hunt that up and see if it's any good. Interesting. What else do we got? We got another one from Stan that we hopefully won't tangent off of as badly as we did the last <laughs> one. It says, Who the hell is Roger? Hi, guys. Okay, we all. <laughs> You like that? Yeah, I know what he's talking about, so yeah, it's funny. Okay, we all agree that Flash 268 was goofy as hell. I always suspected that Carrie Bates liked the funny funny mushrooms, and this comic just confirms it. On the positive side, the Novik and McLaughlin artwork didn't suck. Actually, Mm. they have been the artists on the series since around 200, and their run was winding down. I prefer this art to what comes after, which is largely Don Heck and Carmine Infantino. Hey, hey, hey. I like the Don Heck stuff on The Flash. He continues, I know Infantino's place in comics history, but I never cared for his work, especially the stuff he did in this era, and I will add my own editorializing when he was drawing with a ruler. See, (sighs) Infantino's one of those guys that I feel really weird about because... You know, does he make you feel funny down there, Scott? Is no, freaking perv. No, it's just that I, I look at when like when people talk about this, for example, because I never liked his flash work. I, I just never did. But then you put him on something else like uh, and, and, and I realized that I'm looking at Star Wars with with completely rose colored glasses. I, I fully acknowledge that. But I look at that stuff. And I still think it's excellent. I really, really like it. Some of his stuff, like on Nova for Marvel, I thought was really good. And some different things, but... They did a whole comic book about the chick from Planet of the Apes? (laughs) That would be awesome. Nova. Um, Nova. What was the other book I was trying... Do you love? (laughs) Can you love? (laughs) Go on, I'm sorry. Where are you taking her? Yeah, I love Planet of the Apes. God, yeah. If you know it that well, dude, you got to join us when we finally get around and get off our asses and do our Planet I've of the Apes. I've only seen episode. those clips. I haven't seen the movie yet. Oh, but I saw that clip and I was like, "That's hilarious!" <laughs> <laughs> great movie. It's a. It is a great movie. I'm sorry. I'm tangenting us again. Go ahead. Continue. That's okay. No, you, no, you were on point. I'm the one that derailed us. I'm just going to give a quick announcement to the listeners. Um, 
Scott and I like to think of ourselves as professional podcasters, uh, people that you know really take the time to to do our shows right. Uh, you know, and when and when we get things wrong, and when, you know, it's like if the editing's a little wonky, I feel I feel like bad. I feel like I've really screwed up something important. You get us at about one forty-five in the morning. We don't care. We don't give a shit. <laughs> it's late. Let's just get it over with. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but just, <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. It's just the shit that you see. I'm one of these people that when I'm tired is when a lot is a lot like when other people are drunk. So, yeah. Anyways, um, he continues, The Vosberg Smith art on the story from GLGA number 108 was very nice, and I thought the same thing Michael did about it looking somewhat like Staten. Lots of detail that you just didn't find in the comics these days. I wish Mike Grell had stuck around for a couple more months so we could have had some awesome art for the Starheart two-parter. No doubt. Yep. I would have loved to have seen that. Yep. Not that what we got was terrible, but it wasn't four-star material either. Or Neil Adams. Yeah. I'd love to have seen a Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, GL, Earth 1, Earth 2 crossover. Leave Green Arrow at home. He's a stick in the mud anyways. Stan continues to totally agree with your comments about Green Arrow from this era. (laughs) Speaking of which, the guy was a total dick, and his whole shtick was to be a confrontational liberal. Uh, it started with Denny O'Neill using the character as a mouthpiece, and other key writers kept it going, but the perspective of O'Neill was lost. Ironically, uh, beginning with Longbow Hunters, Ollie was written more as a conservative, reflecting the ideology, ideology of writer Mike Grell. I want to comment on that for a second. I think Denny O'Neill was the only one that wrote him well as the confrontational liberal. And I think other people, like Joey Cavallari on that Detective Comics backup, that's, I mean, he would, like, say it. Well, I'm a liberal, so this is how I feel. And it's just like, really? That's 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 how you're going to write this character? Okay. I, wonder I don't know. My, I'm going to take exception to one thing he said here, which is, uh, he says, I totally agree with your comments about Green Arrow from this era. See, I don't see it that way. I see Green, Land, or Green Arrow this way, period. I I think that's my sole exception. And and it's interesting here. I don't I did definitely didn't see him as a conservative, but I think that it was Mike Grell, you know, his work on that that made that something I actually did enjoy reading, which at the time shocked the hell out of me because I just never thought that that was going to be a character I could find any redeeming qualities in. But that's a, that's a really good prestige format book. Oh man. Yeah. Beautiful artwork in that. But for, you know, accepting that, you know, I, I, this is just how I see green arrow. I just see him as a dick, you know, and, and he's just liberal or not. He's just confrontational. And I don't really care for that in my superheroes. You know, he, he just, and DC has done nothing lately to make the character interesting. They've they've made him like this, like Frank Miller. Uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns was a was a Dick Spring Batman story compared to the uh, the 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 grim and gritty Green Arrow that's around today, and the terrible things they've done to that character and to Red Arrow during that abominable cry for justice story which by the end of you know i said good things about it throughout like the whole thing and then at the end i was like are you 
fucking kidding me. So, yeah. Did you, like, lose an arm or something like that? Yeah, Roy lost an arm thanks to uh, Prometheus. That's stupid. Yeah, it was. It was was pretty dumb. I just, I don't understand. Jesus cry. (laughs) I don't understand why they brought Green Arrow back from the dead anyway. You know, I mean, I, I hear all this bitching about Hal Jordan and, and Barry Allen, but I'm surprised there's not more bitching about Oliver Queen coming back because it's like, who, who? I mean, was there really, like, this outcry for that character to return? See, I liked Connor Hawk, and I've read a couple different, like, stories, like two-issue, three-issue stories from when Chuck Dixon was writing that character, and it was a really interesting character. You know, it was a it was a it was an action hero type world that he lived in, and you know, it was it was interest it was interesting. You know, it was a guy trying to fill the mold, and that was an era where when they did legacy characters, it made sense and it worked because they were building on, on the past instead of right. just trying to pass off a new character with an old name. Right, which is all they're doing today. And I will accept no argument on the subject. Well, except if you <laughs> want to write in about it. But, okay, there you go. Oh, we lost that email. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I'm sorry. It got lost in the Phantom Zone. Mike, didn't you just hit delete? No, I didn't hit delete at all. Delete minutes. is the Phantom Zone. <laughs> uh, Stan wraps it up by saying, looking forward to the look at All-Star Squadron, but I'm glad to know that you aren't going to totally abandon the more extraneous JSA material. Stan. Awesome. Thanks, Stan. All right, we got just a couple more to cover here, and then we're going to call it an evening. We've got one that says, well, today is your lucky day, Scott. And this one's from Jason Trenner, and he writes, you wondered if someone had ever been teleported while in the bathroom for some reason. <laughs> I guess I did, didn't I? He says, well, in the silent issue of The Defenders, that's what happened to Bruce Banner. He was in the shower when the when the curse that sent the team to points of peril grabbed him and Dr. Strange showing a sense of humor, dressed the Hulk in clown pants and clown shoes. I've got to read this issue. Yes. Something Namor found funny. And then they found uh, that they were unable to speak <laughs> and looking forward to the all-star squadron. <laughs> I got to see that. I like how he just throws that in at the end, too. <laughs> hey, this is a really weird issue of the Defenders. Oh, looking forward to the All-Star Squadron. Peace! <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Jason. All right, our last one is from John M. Wilson. He writes, Green Lantern episode. He says, I started reading the Flash book and knew already from your show notes that it was going to be a wonky ride. I looked at the credits and saw Carrie Bates. I don't know what all this guy has done, but I know uh, he has been behind a lot of the Superboy TV series, uh, which I've been watching. And he's written some pretty terrible episodes. So it doesn't surprise me that he's the one doing this book. But I actually did enjoy it. I felt uh, like the end of the story with the bad guys and the plot uh, exposition almost ruined it. But if you ignore that part, seeing the boys' comic fandom and the convention and ignoring the creepy overtones of a little boy and older man reading comics together, it was actually a pretty fun story. 
The Green Lantern books were good. I find it interesting uh, that this Alan Scott still uses his old oath. In case you don't know, he uh, actually originated the Brightest Day, Blackest Night oath relatively early in his career, only using the Shed My Light Over Dark Evil oath uh, for a couple of years. I thought the two adventures had very similar openings, however, which was unfortunate. The Alan Scott story opens with green energy causing uh, things not done by his ring, and the two Green Lanterns story opened very similarly with Hal Jordan. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, he's right. It was nice to see the Starheart thing explained. Was it explained? I don't remember that part. Somewhat. <laughs> he said, I'd read about it on Wiki before, but never actually seen the issues uh, where that bit of background was laid out. A shame it was done in such a nonsensical story, but it was still pretty good despite that. Y'all's commentary was entertaining as always. I find myself breathing a sigh of relief at the announcement of moving on to All-Star Squadron. I completely understand the desire to cover all your bases and be completest in your coverage, and I appreciate that desire and the efforts you made toward it. But sometimes you just want to get to the meat of the game. And I'm looking forward to the journey. And that's from John M. Wilson. I appreciate that very much, I, John. You're, you're absolutely right. I'd like to address one thing. He, he, he asked, you know, I don't know who this Carrie Bites guy, you know, all he's done. He, is, he wrote Superman mm-hmm. for well over a decade. Actually, if you ever see that cover, and I forget which issue of Superman it is, where it has uh, Luther and Brainiac with Superman in a cage... He actually designed that cover and sent it in during a time period where you could do such a thing. And that's kind of how he got his in with this, with Julie, Julie Schwartz. And he wrote some really good Superman stories. Uh, one of my favorites is the two-part Return of Jonathan Kent, where Jonathan Kent is allowed to come to the future. That's, oh, I love that story. It's yeah. such a great story. Oh, my. I mean, I've... I, I, just if you ever can track down those issues of, of action comics, because it's right after action hit 500. And he pretty much wrote action consistently for a long time until he moved over to Superman. Not all of his stuff is fantastic, but I think he had a really good handle on who Superman was. And if you ever watch, uh, it's on that 16-disc Superman box set. They had that original making of Superman the movie special. They have a clip of Julius Schwartz talking to a writer in the DC offices. He's talking to Carrie Bates. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know the part uh, you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, he's also written that uh, Elseworld story that's coming out soon uh, with um, with uh, Jor-el and Laura coming to Earth with Kal-el. Oh, yeah. But he also wrote another great Superman stories that I'd rec- a Superman story that I'd recommend starts in Action Comics number five forty five and continues into the Superman issues of the next month. But it's where Su- Luther got the power suit. Uh, I remember that, and that just Action five forty five by itself is just one of the best pre crisis Lex Luthor stories ever. And is that I the just, one that has a giant? Is that the one with a giant Superman, or no, a giant Lex Luthor? No, like Gil Kane on the cover. Is that the one? No, that's the anniversary issue. 
Okay. Where it has Luther and Brainiac in their old looks and their new looks. I thought and that was 544. That is 544. I'm sorry. The the you're right. 545 is the Brainiac one. That was uh that was the Marv Wolfman story with the redesigned Brainiac. But yeah, just Kerry Bates had some wonky stuff later in his career, and he really ran out of steam on The Flash by about 310, 312, somewhere around there. But his, I would recommend reading his 70s and 80s Superman stuff, because it's really solid work. And that's all I got for that. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I don't know what issue I'm thinking of. But yeah, you're right. Five forty-five is the one with uh, with the new look Brainiac and Superman fighting a bunch of stuff. By uh, I think that's Gil Kane on the cover on that one. And if you'd like to read more of that, check out Back Issue Magazine number thirty-five, where a certain Michael Bailey writes an article about those uh, revamps. Very so. good article, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate I ha- that. I have that article and I uh, or that issue rather, and I enjoyed it very much. Damn, that's going to drive me crazy now. I can't... What the hell issue is is that? Oh, here it is. It's uh, Superman number 386, where a giant power-suited Luthor is uh, picking up the Daily Planet globe. It looks like he's going to smash Superman with it. That's the one I was thinking of. Man of Steel had it coming. (laughs) Take that! Well, I guess that's about it for this week. Uh, Unfortunately, neither of these issues are reprinted anywhere. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend, and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl.